Off the ball's the best, number one. It's the GOAT of sports apps. Talk about the greatest of all time. Big Joe's the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. We know it. <laughs> I, I'm going to say right. I'm the Djokovic of this scenario. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Download the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Alright, you're very welcome along. It's Tuesday morning. We've got a full house for you here. Shane's here. Shane, how are you? Good morning. How are things? Colm is here. Colm, good morning to you. Glad to say hello. If anybody wants to get in touch this morning, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number, or you can always leave a comment at youtube.com forward slash off the ball. Make sure you're subscribed, otherwise you won't be able to leave a comment. And uh, plenty to get our teeth stuck into this morning. The build-up to the Ireland football final has started in, in, in the papers. Jack O'Connor and Desi Farrell uh, both doing press today. Desi Farrell saying Clifford's the greatest he's ever seen. Jack O'Connor saying the lads haven't come back for the crack, which was the same line he used in the immediate aftermath of the semi-final. So only to be expected that uh, everybody's saying they're an amazing team. We'll do well to keep the ball kicked out of them. Mm. Nine games. Um, the Hurling Pod lads are asking, could Paul Connerk at 37 be GEA's first legendary coach? Other than a manager. I'd say... 37. I'd say when O'Shea, when he stopped the five in a row... And created all that space for a hat trick in an All Ireland final to stop the five in a row. That was mm. that's the start of it. But I'm sure if you go back, yeah, there have to be others as well. I'm sure there's some hurling historians watching this morning who'll be able to go. Mm. Uh, there are, others. but look, the, I guess it's what he's achieved with his young age. I think the level of praise that he gets all the time. I think because probably because we saw it in action, right? When COVID happened, we saw the break and play, we saw the board come out and we saw a supercharged performance over the next quarter. Mm. It was like, oh, they seem to be doing exactly what the man with the whiteboard told them to do. And that seems to have won them the game here in this like second quarter or after the water break. Mm. So I suspect that that's one of the reasons why it's, um, you know, there was a camera on, we watched what happened and then we saw the impact of it. Like, obviously you can see the impact and anybody you speak to talks about the impact he had and then obviously won an All-Ireland with Clare and who were essentially a team of kids at that stage so I mean the CV is pretty pretty impressive right mm. people in Kilkenny certainly last week would, would scream about Father Tommy Marr the great uh, legendary seven All-Irelands in 18 seasons so he's not the manager no he, like he was, he was he was see he was a very much a coach right hands on coach but he was the number one yeah so I don't know how you I don't know how we're differentiating here are we just talking about someone who's hands-on hands or someone who's number two? The number two is the thing, is it? Yeah, it's the legendary coach. Mm. And now there's two reasons. Like they, Definitely the age, like most people starting off their coaching career at that point in their lives. And then also, if you look at the speech afterwards, Keen Lynch was, um, he described this person before naming them. And for all intents and purposes, he thought he was going to say John Kiley. And then he says, Paul Connors, genius. You know. But you no, that's the, he described the impact that a genius manager would have. Obviously, Kiley is the brains behind the whole thing as well like definitely going to leave Kylie to last though. oh no totally but I'm just saying that that's the influence that this guy's having like Kylie would also say that about him I'm sure oh he does yeah, yeah. you know um, I'm not like intimating a jealousy thing there or anything but it was just the esteem at which the players hold Canark like to go first and to be so effusive in his praise like you know he's, using he's, every adjective under the sun to describe this yeah. brilliance he's even more mythical because I don't know what he sounds like 
Like <laughs> I, I don't know. He has done interviews, I'm sure, but I, I just have a few YouTube uh, seminars, which are like a, an hour long coaching. And, right. Um, yeah, like that's the that that's the type of stuff that you see, as opposed to um, any of the big sit downs. Or yeah. I'm sure. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe when they've made their when they've stopped making history, there'll be a bit more. He'll talk more. Yeah, but it just adds to the mystique and the grandeur around him. He's like. <laughs> But they all speak of him so so highly that they, they can't all be wrong. And he's he's just you get the sense very much that the halftime team talk that they all spoke about. I'm sure Canark was heavily involved there. Um, maybe he is the man that does the team talk. Kylie's more of a man, a, a manager, a man manager. Um, I'm sure it's a, it's a combined effort. But Jesus, he's a uh, he's unbelievable. Like everything he touches turns to gold, and it's just it it's just the fact that this Limerick team can react to absolutely anything thrown at them and you, you always feel like going in at half time three points you're like that's not enough that is not enough for Kenny to lead um, Kenny had a slight breeze in the first half am I right in saying oh yeah it, was, it wasn't and it wasn't that slight either right so even at, at that you're thinking oh this lead need, need, needed to be a six at least so that little Key and Lynch kind of mini period where they dragged them back into the game was, was all the more important but just the performance was just it won't be an All Ireland final. I don't know. Will it be an All Ireland final that we look back on? Oh, I think so. For years and years. well, maybe sorry because of the four in, four in a row. But but I think because of the quality of the opposition, I think Kilkenny played really well. Yeah, like that's the you know it's like the the Kilkenny tip rivalry was amazing, mm. and I think it was only amazing in the end because Tipperary got them, uh, and that was an all time great team. I, I, a lot of people are saying it's the Clare rivalry that is the one that we're going to remember the most. From the Clare from this era, that Clare are the team who were putting it up to Limerick the most, but I don't think the story's fully written yet. If you'd said before the game that Kenny would score two goals and Limerick would score none, and yet Limerick would win by nine points, you'd be like, "That's Limerick!" Like, yeah, you just don't need them, uh, and hence the little fist pumps of thirty points that mark between Kylie and Kinnerk. Like, they're yeah, just they reached their KPI <laughs> again. Yeah, you, you just Third got the in a row. Like if they'd just ended on 29 points you get the sense there'd be a sense of disappointment maybe a little tiny modicum of ah we, did, we didn't quite get to our level but um, there were just so many leaders in that Kenny, or, uh, Limerick team and the chat uh, you'll, you'll have, a lot of people watching this morning will have seen uh, Ashleen's chat with um, Dara Donovan and David Reedy yesterday at the, um, the homecoming Dara in very 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 good form I love the say. setting of that you know just on a bench on a park bench just hanging out ah it's amazing um, <laughs> what was Dara's line at the end we're going to go full Jack Reedish <laughs> which I mean they're them. kind of a bunch of Jack Reedishes in their celebration yeah. Limerick they wear it well they uh, they kind of the hat backwards seems to be unofficial clothing range yeah, of I uh, Limerick saw, I saw someone posting the, the way that the, the Limerick team's uh, clothes have changed the homecomings over the years 2018 it was very formal they all wore the same kind of navy stuff last year I think it was uh, less formal but but still sharp Short sleeve shirt that they and all the wore. same. Everybody wearing the same. Everyone the same. And then yeah. yesterday it was like we're in Limerick and we're all wearing the most comfortable clothes we have. Dara's in a Gucci top. Like they're all just wearing whatever they want. The more successful you are, like the you more freedom you have to wear what you want. It's like Eric Cantona, United. He was allowed to wear runners with a suit ahead of time. I would say mm. that's kind of a thing now. But uh, everybody else used to be lambasted out of it if they didn't wear exactly what Alex Ferguson told them to, except Cantona. Yeah. You know, you earned the right to be a fashionista. Yeah, it, it is interesting though that they've decided that there's not going to be like a, so. Everybody has to get fitted for that stuff during the week. There's like a 
you're just adding on an extra layer of formality to the whole thing. It's like, no, you just wear whatever you want. You know, mm-hmm. don't worry about it. We're we're not sweating the small stuff here. Yeah, it adds. Yeah, exactly. It adds to them. Yeah, exactly. It I was also does. thinking yesterday. Yeah, was like, oh, they're not going to get to the the children's hospital, but they of course were at the children's arc in UHL yesterday or the, the morning after the game as well. So they're do- it's nice that they're doing everything. I think in Limerick, they're probably going to set a, a new trend here in some ways. They are missing out on the boar's head, as you know. Well, there is that. Yeah. I'm like, I'm against. I'm I'm for it for every other aspect apart from the missing out on the boar's head. Maybe they do the boar's head in a few days. Come back maybe, into Dublin. Maybe. But waking up the morning after the All Ireland in Limerick, I think just that's why we couldn't get them on. Fun. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, they seem so much happier though being in Limerick. Oh, they said it, didn't they? Yeah. To Ashling, it was so much better, so much more crack back home, and that was it. You know, it was just the relaxed nature of the whole thing, and they can actually be themselves. And it's that culture of family as well. Was it David Reedy said with Ashling? Is like literally most of my best friends are on this team. Like a lot of the lads are just. So so unbelievably close, and I know that that, that culture and that family is are, are words that John Kiley used in the in, in the wake of the game, and, and other coaches used as well. Like it's just not that other teams and counties like the Kenny, I'm sure, have the same sort of culture in, in, embedded in their squad. But Limerick's just seems to be so special, and they keep that team together. And, and even Darrow was talking yesterday at that park bench with Ashley. There was a few of the young lads on the panel sitting in the background that we maybe didn't see much of this year but he said these lads are coming like, oh and he named them all off and yeah. said how good they were <laughs> it's amazing I'm really looking forward to seeing what the bull does the you bull know, no pressure no pressure on the bull uh, it's 7.40 here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock for you Tommy Walsh is going to join us at 8 o'clock and pick his team of the championship Sue Rowland is going to preview the Canada game and reflect on the opening Australia game for us uh, sports news at 8.45 Alan Quinlan's top 5 tries of his career uh, of matches he played in rather as opposed to his own tries and Ty Furlong uh, speaking with Shane and uh, that's coming your way at half nine we have uh, Tommy Welch's team of the year as you said there and we have some of the names certified guaranteed but he's leaving room for a bit of debate that's the excitement now that's going to be after the first okay, ad yeah. break because he just can't pick because it's been pretty competitive it has been competitive I saw I saw people uh, saying oh no no Claire lads hang on there Claire B Limerick yeah. Do we remember this? Yep. Do you remember actually the, like <laughs> short memories? Yeah, and and uh, put them to the pin of their collar. Well, the so. Sunday game team, the Sunday game didn't pick uh, Tony Kelly, which caused a little bit of mm, controversy, maybe in some quarters. Uh, the controversy then is who do you take out for Tony Kelly? But like they picked Shane O'Donnell, didn't they? They did. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Thrilled. It's hard to leave Kelly, Kelly out as well, really. Yes, ludicrous. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see if Tommy does. Yeah, it's, maybe. Uh, he, knows, he knows a bit more about this than I do. Come here. I know we're going to go to Kathleen there imminently in Perth this time, the other side of Australia. But before that, I think it's important to say, because we don't have any other soccer on the show today, Kylian Mbappe, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I was reading the math about this, right? So the weekly salary, if he does go to Al-Hilal, who have made a world record $300 million bid, £260 million, would be... Eleven point six three million pounds a week that Mbappe would earn, which is precisely nine point six million pounds more than he earns at PSG at the moment. Every yeah, week, he's only on two million a week at the moment. But per that, yeah. So and with, with all the creative freedom that you want, mm. so if he does this for a year and then gets his dream moved to Real Madrid, happy days, Killian, isn't it? But so sad days for football. They're giving him five hundred million. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, for the year. It looks like a lot. It does seem like quite a bit. But no. it's, it's nothing to them. Well, you could buy a Premier League team for less than that. So I don't think they want to though. I think they want to do their thing over there. And I understand they want to bring that. Over there. I understand that. I do. I like. I know what they're doing. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like they're getting good value. You know that. Oh, this will be the moment where they catapult into everybody's living rooms. Will it really? 
Mm. Well, are we all going to sit and watch Saudi Arabian football on TV? The lads had, well, that's the Maybe crowd. we are. Maybe the two big leagues in the world in 10 years' time are going to be America and Saudi Arabia. And, you know, they're, they've, all, they've long been allies, haven't they? Yeah, like the, the lads had a similar conversation recently on the show. Like, it, it's almost like an episode of Black Mirror, but at what point will we be watching Match of the Day Saudi Arabia? Like, and watching highlights and kids well, going around in, in Al Halal shirts? You can watch the local football in your neighbourhood if you choose to if you get sucked into watching if Black Mirror style if you, if you don't have the, the brain power to not do it then fair play congratulations on being on the but if they top. sign enough of these unbelievable who players cares? then the western world and, and kids are going to want to watch them who cares the MLS signed a lot of washed up has-beens right and uh, okay so this is not washed up has-beens no, no, it's not. this is some of the best players in the world but they're playing in a, a low standard of football like do you watch pre-season friendlies that don't involve your team ever um no. Why would you? Yeah, but mm. yeah, but yeah, China. Kylian Mbappe in his prime doesn't take part in a lot. But of hold, hold on a second. You, are, are you telling me you care about the outcome of one team versus another in Saudi Arabia? You've literally no connection with it. No, but it's it's more the players, isn't it? I, I don't. I couldn't care less about the team. And I'm not saying I, I'd watch them. But I'm saying I think a large cohort of people will. Like if Kylian Mbappe, Jordan Henderson, all these lads are heading off. Okay, the the, the, the who not to put Henderson watch, in the same. Yeah, the same well, you're gonna I, like come on. I, no, you don't. You don't have to watch it. They could sign the 25 best players in the world, but I'll still be far more interested because I follow Aston Villa in in Aston Villa's fortunes, and that is also in itself ridiculous. I'll still be uh, trying to get more interested in my domestic league and more likely to bring my kids to my domestic league than it's, it's up to us to. We, we, we have incredible power when it comes to what's going on here by not watching and not caring about it. Kylian Mbappe could go and score 600 goals. They could be the greatest goals you've ever seen. Remember the, remember the goals Latan scored where he dribbles around like 12 people in a pre-season friendly? It's it, was like, a, it was Ajax. In a pre-season friendly. A Friday Galaxy. Yeah. No, no, it was Ajax. It was back, yeah, in, the, right. back yeah. in the day, yeah. Yeah. But like, it, it's just, it's, just it, it's meaningless. Um, but what about the young people who don't support clubs and they support players mm. they'll go wherever Mbappe goes you know you're saying Aston Villa but that's your thing you know and you come from a time where you'd support the club over the player but oftentimes now it's like the players marketed so much that they're the new club for people so like if they sign enough of those type of players of the types of Mbappe and get them in longer term contracts why wouldn't the new generation of football fans watch their football in Saudi Arabia why would they care about the political aspect of it or the morality aspect well, then they're not good people. If you don't care about, but if you don't, don't, if you don't care if about morality, if you if you're making a choice to go, oh, I don't really care about this thing, like fast. But fashion. kids don't kids don't care about Saudi about Saudi um, human then, rights well, issues. Well, their heroes are going to play right for well, these then, leagues. So well, they're, then they're going to follow their heroes. There are repercussions for that. I think if there's enough that go, the people will follow. If the product is better, eventually. Who will follow though? Enough, enough to a point where enough it, fans, enough people will watch it. All they want is people watching it. But hang on, this, you, that, that's a different. You're saying we're all going to be watching. The, no, Shane's question. We. Shane's question was, when will we be watching? That was his question. Mm. And I'm saying I'm never going to be watching it. That's you. Uh, yeah, but or rather, when that was what he asked. When will the TV? That's what he asked. When will the TV companies be showing us highlights, regardless of our individual decisions to watch? When well, will we be throwing this? Well, you can you can get it now if you want. What TV companies are you talking about? When will Sky show it? Well, when will it, when will they prioritize yeah, that over the here. Premier League? Yeah, they're never going to prioritize it over the Premier League because the Premier League like has a domestic market of sixty million people, and so 
Sure. The the rights for the Premier League are six billion. Richard Masters in the papers today, and it's uh, slightly greater international rights than local rights. But the still local rights will be two billion. And for two billion, you'll still get a really good league, a really competitive league where the storied history of Manchester United and Liverpool and Arsenal and Chelsea and everybody else actually matters. That's why this stuff matters. You can't just... So the, the reason that the uh, the Saudis and Qatar and uh, the UAE are trying to buy football is because it has a history that they don't have. That's the cachet that they're trying to get. It's not just about the geopolitical power. While that's very important, it's also about the kudos from owning something that has a history and a tradition. And the Saudi League will never have that. So no matter how good the quality of football gets, it's going to be like one of those Champions League games that you watch where it's like, oh, the quality of football is very good here, but I actually don't care about what happens here. And so, sure, uh, there will be a, a critical mass of people around the world who are watching this, but it won't matter. But Abu Dhabi bought Manchester City in 2008 and it's basically a new club now. It's nothing to do with the previous club. And they have a whole new generation of fans. There's Man City fans walking around the street now that would never have supported City if Abu Dhabi didn't buy them. Are they Abu Dhabi fans? They're, they're fans of what they're seeing in front of them. They're fans of Haaland and the Bruyne. They don't care about where the money's coming from. That's my point. If the players go, people will follow. But people just want to watch a good product. People want escapism. They're not going to look into your, what's happening your, here. Your point is that... Um, their senses will be dulled. In, in Manchester, mm. a club exists that has a, a lot of money that has come from the Gulf. Right. Yeah. But uh, you could you could build that same team in Saudi Arabia, and uh, you're not going to have kids in Manchester wandering around in shirts for one of those teams. Well, Manchester, no, because City are doing that in England. Yeah. So, but another city. Shane's questions, which were which was the the basis of this, is when are we going to be watching this? When is it going to be our TVs? And my point is that it's never going to supplant the Premier League in the hearts and minds of the people who are Premier League fans, genuine Premier League fans, as opposed to the casual fans who you're talking about who are like Instagram fans. And like, I don't really actually know. I mean, they're, they're, you could basically just buy the Kardashian brand and access the same, a similar sized audience. And that's the conversation I think you're like, oh, this doesn't matter because the audience is going to be so big. That wouldn't achieve sports washing though. Like, and, and this is, build, this is feel the dream stuff. Build it and they will come. And I, I feel like a lot of people are going to head towards the Saudi League cause, because it is not like the MLS whatsoever it's players in the prime of their life and kids the generation of kids nowadays as you say Colm only care about players they do not care about teams they're Mbappe fans and they're Haaland fans some of them support teams of course yeah I mean come on but kids, like, kids you're saying kids like you know every single kid right and no like, they're, but, they're, they're, the individual players have become big brands that's true but yeah. at some point at some point everybody starts to think about stuff like oh they will never think about it you can never reach a moment where you tip over from uh, they just executed another 200 people there oh with the football oh with the 200 people oh but you see you and me would have the same preference I'd never leave the Premier League for Saudi League nor would I nor would I sorry for the record but but I'm not talking about us that's my point here there is a market for this if prime players go over sure but that's that's the thing I'm not going to say it's going to overtake the Premier League completely but in 5 to 10 years time you could see kids walking around with Saudi Arabian club jerseys I'd be, I'd be so unsurprised I'd be so unsurprised if that was how many of them though right because there's always going to be there's always going to be one or two yeah right? totally because we thought that was going to happen in China and it didn't and MLS as well and it hasn't really 
it hasn't taken over the Premier League. This is probably the biggest threat to it. There's obviously way more money here than there is in uh, either of those two leagues. Yeah. Like in, you know, in in, uh, in raw terms, the money that's being talked about by Mbappe, I just don't think they're getting good value for money. I think that Mbappe could go and everybody's like, oh, this is a, a well, we'll see. Well, the one thing because it's only a one-year contract, so he'll just he's going to leave after twelve months. So how much? Uh, positive impact will that have for the league I don't know if the other thing with Mbappe sorry Shane the only thing with Mbappe is that like he doesn't get challenged as it is enough with Paris Saint-Germain mm. we, like he doesn't play in enough high quality games Mbappe the world doesn't really see him like so many of Champions those games League. in France he's breezing through them even when they lose whatever like even if they win the league it's like Grant other than the PSG Ultras whatever they haven't done anything in the Champions League we don't see him that often we don't see the best of Mbappe let's go to, let's go to Australia Kathleen McNamee, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, guys. Doing good, doing good. How is the World Cup? Yeah, it's gone well. Um, sitting in Perth, a very, very rainy and cold Perth. Arrived in late last night. Um, so just spent the morning kind of wandering around, exploring. Uh, was just watching the Canada press conference there. So their coach, Bev Priestman, was saying that Ireland are a horrible team to play against and uh, that Jesse Fleming will be fit so that's probably the big news that's just happened in the last 10 or so minutes from over here There's another Ireland press conference today at around about half past nine but Vera is in the all the papers this morning so obviously there was something yesterday as well uh, that's actually from the weekend. So Vera was chatting um, to the newspapers and she was saying that uh, Abby Larkin, did, she didn't say specifically that she's going to start, but that she kind of hinted that it could be a possibility. And if that is the case, the likelihood is that Marissa Shiva um, may come out of the squad, which would be a tough one for her to take considering the performance the other night and being substituted so quickly after the um, penalty. But the big question mark is kind of is Abby she was absolutely brilliant when she came on is she ready to have that starting position and to play as well as she did from the get-go um so yeah it's going to be interesting to see what Vera says she's as you say she's up for media around half nine your time the last time we did one of these press these are like the FIFA press conferences and normally a lot of the time the Irish media gets to chat to Vera kind of you know the Irish mm. yeah so it's a lot easier um, the last one only lasted for 11 minutes so yeah the big ones will be chances of Abby Larkin starting an update on Louise Quinn um, she flew to Perth in a protective boot but did play in the training session they have they have another training session later today and then also how is Katie McCabe's hand because uh she her fingers were fairly heavily bandaged after the last game. It's not Katie up for media today. It's Kira Carissa. So um, be interesting to see. That kind of implies that there won't be any changes up front for Ireland in terms of who's going to start in that solo position. So the team, Kathleen, went back to the base in Brisbane after the Australia game, and then what four and a half, five hours west to, to Perth. Five hours. Turns out Australia's pretty yeah. big. Yeah, it turns out it is. I had the good fortune of having a screaming baby behind me for the five hours yesterday, which was very fun. Although I, I felt a lot worse for the parents than I did myself. But um, yeah, five hours, it's a long trip. There was a lot of people kind of questioning why the team didn't maybe stay on in Sydney for a day or two and then go straight to Perth and kind of get, because there's also a jet lag. So like there's a two hour time difference. Um, so in Brisbane and Sydney, we were nine head, hours ahead of Ireland here. We're only seven. Uh, but it was FIFA mandated that they go back to Brisbane because that is technically their base. Um, so the team had a bit of media on Saturday morning and then they had a day off. I had training session on Friday, a bit of media on Saturday morning, and then the rest of the day off on Saturday, which was quite funny because I think a lot of people took that as an opportunity to recharge their batteries. So, you know, I was wandering around 
South Brisbane going into the fan zones and you just kept running into the players and it got to the point where I felt like saying to them I swear I'm not trying to stalk you this part is just very very small and it's kind of the nice part of Brisbane and so yeah a lot of them went to the fan zone in Brisbane which was really really good vibe and I watched the England game there and then they flew out on Sunday morning and they've had a training session here since and then yeah another one today and also a familiarization with the stadium later just where the team get to kind of walk out and around the field and then game day tomorrow should be a lot more Irish fans what is it 20 I think 20,500 capacity Perth rectangular stadium so the the shape of the stadium will surprise no one yeah yeah I don't know if there will be more Irish here I definitely Perth because it's so off the beaten track it's kind of harder to get to for a lot of Irish fans um, I went to a couple of Irish pubs this morning because what else do you do at 11 o'clock on a what day is it Tuesday Um and I was chatting to just some of the owners there and stuff, and they say there's a nice Irish crowd in Perth, but they don't really expect too many people to be flying in. Mm. Um, I've heard of a couple of groups, but a lot of people are staying over on the other coast just because of that five-hour flight there and five hours back. It's not particularly pleasant. Um, and also just it's not as regular as some of the other internal flights, but there should be a good Irish crowd. Um, there's a couple of the pubs here that are throwing events, so we'll bop along to those and see who has come out for for the big game. Is it getting much uh, coverage in the in the local papers? I'm just uh, keeping an eye on the, the score here from the the New Zealand Philippines game, and Philippines on course for a for a massive shock, won the lead there after just over an hour. But um, I'd imagine that mm. the, the papers in both countries, Australia and New Zealand, are fairly heavily weighted towards this. Yeah, I was actually just watching that game before I came on with you guys, and uh, if. New Zealand had won that would have been them true so that would have been massive considering like the last game was the first one they've ever won at a World Cup the papers are definitely going heavy on it it's just actually getting to watch the games that's really difficult because apart from the Matildas games all the group stage games are all behind a paywall so like you can get Optus Sports which is basically the equivalent of Sky Sports here which a lot of homes will have anyways but even if you go into like most hotel rooms, like a lot of the Irish press pack hasn't been watching the games. I bought a subscription because it was like $20 for the month that I was here. And I was like, it's going to be worth it in terms of actually seeing what's happening in the World Cup. Um, but a lot of places you go into either don't have a subscription or just aren't showing it. So there's definitely in the traditional media, there's a lot of buzz, but it's kind of hard unless you're going to very specific places to catch the games, which is a shame because I think that's the way that you get people the most is, you know, those people casually flicking around on their TV and see a game pops up and decide to pay attention to it. Um, and there's a lot of anger on the ground here from Australians that if Optus was allowed by the rights to it, I think it was a good few years ago now because they see it as a barrier to growing the game here. Um, I mean, if you look at the viewing figures from most other countries, I think Brazil's last game was watched by like 11.5 million people, which is the biggest viewership they've had since uh, the Beijing Olympics or something on women's football. So like stuff like that's great to see. And it's definitely happening. Uh, I think there's 54% more attendance so far at this stage of the tournament. So all those figures across the board are really positive. It's just annoying if you're in Australia to try and watch it. Ireland are playing the uh, reigning Olympic champions here, Canada, but Canada have only won one of the last seven games. They haven't scored in four mm-hmm. of their last six matches. They've conceded 10 in their last eight. So you're saying we have a chance? <laughs> Possibly. I thought another interesting fact about Canada, of the 32 teams that are in the World Cup, 30 of them have domestic leagues. 
Canada are one of the ones that do not have a domestic league. They have the eighth highest um, income in the world. And the other, the other team who doesn't have a league is Haiti, which is one of the, one of the poorest countries in the world. So it says a lot about the setup for them there. Uh, if you watch the game they played against Nigeria, I think it summed it up very well to say they're really good defenders, but you don't know where their goal is going to come from, which makes me think that tomorrow could be a little bit of a trudge because that's kind of how people look at mm. us. Now, Jessie Fleming going into the setup does change things massively because she's a really high impact player. Um, there was massive worry on the Canadian side that she wasn't going to be available. Likelihood from what I've seen in the Canadian papers and stuff is that they think Christine Sinclair is going to be taken out who missed that penalty. That's huge, that isn't it? Also... Yeah, it is. But also you have to remember what Christine Sinclair is like 40 odd. Yeah. So like you probably don't expect her to play a full match anyways, whereas Jesse Fleming is competing at the highest level with um, Chelsea and the WSL. So that's going to be really interesting. And then... I mean, I half expected there. I was like 50-50 on whether there'd be any changes. And I thought the only change on the Irish side would probably be Abby Larkin or Lucy Quinn coming in to that kind of midfield role and also providing a little bit of cover for Katie. Um, so really interested to see what Vera says about that in a couple of hours' time. What kind of shape do Canada have? How do they match up against our shape? Actually very similar. That's the thing. The two teams set up pretty much the same way. Um, or at least have in their last couple of games they like to go heavy on the defence and then like Fleming is really good at breaking behind the lines so utilising her in the best way possible would be really important they also have Ashley Lawrence who is like one of the best players um, out there at the moment and she is just signed for Chelsea so we'll be seeing a lot more of her this season in the WSL she was up for media today as well and again I feel like herself and Bev Priestman were kind of egging Ireland on and putting us up a little bit. But yeah, tomorrow's crucial. I mean, we lose tomorrow, we're out of the tournament. So a result of some kind is absolutely essential. I think I probably felt a lot more optimistic coming out of the Australia game than I do now, having had like a couple of days. I just, I really don't know where our goals are going to come from unless it is a set piece or something, especially if Vera was like so reticent to use Amber Barrett on the night in Sydney. Um, So yeah, the... The team is going to be interesting tomorrow, especially I feel like after the first hour, if it looks like we're not going to score a goal, I just wonder will Vera have the confidence to stick on someone like Amber? Perth, what's it like? It's a strange city. I have I've only had a proper chance to look around it this morning because I got in last late last night. It's kind of hard to work out what its vibe is. You know, Sydney was very you know hopping happening central city brisbane's very chill whereas here you definitely notice it's a little bit more rough around the edges than the other cities that i've been to so far it's also been the worst weather since i've been here so that could be adding to it a little bit but um you kind of go very quickly to slightly run down areas into like big bustling districts um so yeah i'm curious to have a proper look around maybe a little bit today and then tomorrow morning as well to see if i can find some of the nice places um, yeah good Irish folk called Dirty Nellies who are showing all the World Cup games so that, that has been my main recommendation so far it's also a great name for a pub not bad okay, can we expect Vera Powell will play Katie McCabe higher up the pitch that seemed to be something coming out of the papers as well this morning that she maybe feels a little less reluctant to do that yeah I don't think I've ever actually heard Vera so like open about the fact that Katie needs to get higher up the pitch normally she's like no 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 she wants to sit deep but you can see you're doing that like the role 
the places that Shiva was getting herself into on the pitch, it was obvious that that was something that they talked about. Um, I think because she was talking about it so much, I really do wonder if that is, there is going to be a tactical switch to allow that for Katie, because realistically, I don't know if we should be having someone who is five foot one in our like back five, especially if that's a target area for teams to put in high balls. Um, so yeah, Katie getting higher up to pitch seems that Vera thinks that she was the only one likely to score, um, which again, I have to question a little bit when you look at where a lot of our goals have come from recent times. Like we all know Katie playing higher up the pitch is a good thing, but we also need to make sure that we're not leaving ourselves open to things that like happened with the penalty where someone who isn't used to playing in defensive positions does something silly and that's the decider in what was an incredibly, incredibly close game. I don't feel as sick about this one, which is maybe a bonus or else it's a sign of resignation. I haven't quite decided yet. <laughs> I know, it's hope. But they're, they're the same thing. <laughs> Flip sides of the same coin. Good stuff, Kathleen. We'll let you go and get ready for the press conference. Cheers. Thanks, guys. So, uh, Kathleen McNamee in uh, Perth in Australia. We'll talk with Sue Ronan about the uh, tactical breakdown of the game in about 20 minutes time if you want to get in touch 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of Off The Ball Braeburn uh, Coffee is coming to an Apple Green store near you new Braeburn locations are popping up every month visit applegreenstores.com forward slash Braeburn to find your nearest Braeburn Coffee experience after the break Tommy Walsh first here's Kathleen speaking with Anya Gorman a couple of days after the game had a bit of time to relax what was it like sitting there watching everything happen yeah, it was amazing. Obviously, I think before the girls came out of the tunnel, um, Ole 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 kicked off and kind of gave me goosebumps and I turned around and I was just like, something hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was pretty special and obviously the national anthem was sung really loud and proud. And, um, yeah, it was just a really special moment. And everyone's keep saying, like, take it in, try and enjoy it. So, so that was my moment and then it was obviously focused on the game. Can you take it in in the moment? Like, I feel like even from outside, it's really hard to actually look at the game and take it all in, soak it in. It was brilliant in the moment, but now it almost feels like a little bit of a dream or you're kind of questioning, did that actually happen? Yeah, look, I think as sports people as well, anytime you play a match, you kind of just park it, take what you have to out of it and then look forward to, to the next game as well. So I think it's something you more reflect on probably when your, your career's over or the World Cup's over. Very fast talking about careers being over, but too soon. We'll <laughs> 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 get through the World Cup first. Um, That's what happens when you get to my age. <laughs> in terms of Canada, Nigeria, have you had much of an opportunity to look back on the game that happened yesterday? Um, yeah, well, we were flying yesterday when the match was on so but it was actually on the telly last night yeah so mm-hmm. look back on it obviously um Canada uh, penalty saved as well so so they're unfortunate in that front but um we think Nigeria put it up to them as well so we can take positives out of that result going into Wednesday. So the general thought like I was talking to a couple of the players last night and the general feeling seemed to be quite positive after that game like obviously the disappointment of not getting the result we wanted but also after seeing that game feeling like there's two wins possibly from the take in there? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're to every game of football to win, don't you? So we just have to back ourselves and believe and take uh, take the positives out of the game and the occasion on um, Thursday night and, and prepare like we always do. OTB AM The Sports Breakfast Show from Off The Ball Right. Four minutes, five minutes past eight this morning. We're turning back to hurling in the Ireland final and the season in general. Tommy Walsh, good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Jar. The dust has settled. How are you feeling about it now? Uh, it's tough now. It's one of the toughest defeats we've got, I'd say, Jar. 
Um, so disappointed. Like normally you dust yourselves down and, and you look forward to the following year, but definitely finding this one a bit harder to get over. Um, you know, you why like every all earned is important. But I suppose, you know, like I always shout for the underdog, whether it's Kilkenny or whoever it is, like that year I'm uh, I'm an underdog man, you know, and um just seeing the lads like, you know, they're after losing the last couple of all Irelands, I suppose a hurl with, you know, seven or eight of them ten years ago and um know exactly what they put into it. Like, you know, talk about role models for your county or for young lads. I have young lads now going up and training young lads and they're the guys we want them to look up to and you couldn't pick better role models. And that's from being in with them 10 years ago. And I know they've probably gone on to huge lengths since then. Like the game has gone on so much from training two or three times, well, three times a week, we'll say. And maybe throw in a gym session every maybe 10 days. Now, like, they're training six, seven days a week. Like, a recovery session now is nearly 1,000-metre sprints. And um, so just seeing what they put into it and just seeing walking off the field after the disappointment of an all and loss there was heartbreaking enough, like, you know. So, but listen, all congratulations to Limerick. They were met by a team that is just absolutely outstanding. Yeah, I, I think maybe one of the reasons why it's harder to take is that there's not much else that you can point to that Kilkenny could have done. Maybe maybe a free here or maybe a better shot selection. But like they played about as well as they could do. They were feverish and tigerish in that first half and it's, it just wasn't enough. Yeah, it wasn't enough. And um, like, you know, I probably could easily go along and went along with that argument that you said for, you know, for a little, for a minute or two, but... When you think back on it, like though games do change on so many moments, like and you only have to rewind back to the Allerton semi-final, the Camogie one in Nolan Park there at the weekend, Tipperary and Watford, like so it was one eight to three points, and it looked like you know an All Ireland winning team versus a team that isn't a contender at that stage, and suddenly a few things changed for Watford, and suddenly they looked brilliant. So you know, I'd probably. Just a team, any team that gets an All Ireland final should be good enough to win it, and I believe that any team. I believe they have the the, the forwards, they have the they have the team, and they have the subs coming on. We said talked about their subs all year. Just a few different instances on the day just could have changed. You know, like regards the sixty five, um, that wasn't the the three or four goal chances that we had, like David Reedy's hook on on Alan Murphy. I thought was you know it looked. Ordinary, but that was an amazing hook because uh, he had so much ground. He's really hitting a beautiful kind of a messy type of a, a ball over the top and um, straight into into the Kenny Forrest hand. And Alan Murphy then nearly had a great goal chance. He had, you know, he had the uh, Mossy slip. He had the, the the half chance of a pull there in the second half. Well, went into Nicky Craig in the end. He had the goal chance in the first half, and we did have a lot of points as well, Jared, that we normally would shoot over the bar and. Like, we have to rewind, but 60 minutes gone, I'd say it was around 60, I might know, 59 minutes. There was only two, three points in it. Like, a score, say if you had to go a few scores before that, suddenly you're two points up. It's squeaky bum time then. So, I know, I think the last 10 minutes, probably, you know, painted a different picture of the whole entire game. And uh, it's just, I suppose, it is Limerick's ability to score three or four quick points. That's probably what stands them out from the rest. Like, if you go through their team especially say from midfield up you couldn't say anyone was unbelievable like you know or regards Peter Casey scored five great points scored two off two or three you know off different lads didn't score them all off the one fella and um, I just think he got lovely ball time hard to defend it 
But other than, we'll say, Peter scoring the five points, everyone else was only chipping in with two each. I think I had it down for six six of the Limerick players to score two each. And, um, you know, like, if say if you take Peter Casey's second half performance out of it, was it clear who was the man of the match? You know, normally you would in such a such a victory. But, um, no, I don't think they were that far away when you go back on it. But the scoreline, obviously, they were. Tommy, uh, I think it was Van Larkin and Joe Hennessy saying to me last week, it's one thing walking around Kilkenny as a Kilkenny hurler, but walking around Kilkenny as a All-Ireland winning Kilkenny hurler is what they all dream of. Like, this is going to enter now a ninth year next year since Kilkenny won. Aside from those seven or eight players that you, you said you played with that maybe have won Liam McCarthy at some point, like, most of this Kilkenny team have never experienced winning a, a senior All-Ireland. So, I think the last kind of half gap for Kilkenny was maybe 93 to 2000. You know, the, the rest of the time there hasn't really been much of a gap at all. So, does the pressure rack it up now year on year until this particular team wins one? Um, I don't... Uh, listen, when you get to the final, it obviously will because of the last couple of finals. But I don't think, you know, to, to win an All-Ireland Championship for Kilkenny, that, I don't think the time frame is really bothering anyone. It's not mm-hmm. bothering me anyway. Um, because, you know, this is a great Limerick team at the moment. Um, I just think they have to look forward. When you're young, listen, you're always hopeful and hope is what you, everyone needs. And like there'll be new players coming in from the Kenyan 20s. There'll be new players coming in all the time that'll have to be tried and tested. Like we've seen the Cork team that won the All Ireland in 99, full of young fellas against the Heads, and Kenny team in 82 against Cork. Like young fellas win All Ireland's all the time. And um, that's what you'll be hoping for. But listen, they'll go back in. Now is probably not the time, Shane, to be even thinking about that. It's too far away. What they'll be thinking about is now get back probably this week, you know, probably a week or two off, back into the club action then. And it's amazing how January comes around quick and you forget it all and on you go again. Yeah, so you're you're actually there is hope then for that uh, team that it's less to spare. Before we move on, I do want to just talk about Canark because the lads in the hurling pod were asking, you know, he's he's still only in his late thirties, uh, mid thirties. If you're um, uh, nitpicking here, it's an incredible achievement to reach the point of this stage of his career where everybody now universally acknowledges him as one of the greatest coaches in the history of the game. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like, um, like if you think back, I suppose, just looking at interviews and listening to guys and you were talking to a few of them, Joe Hennessy and Eddie Kerr and that chain the other day, like Father Tommy Marr, whilst we don't know the extent of, of the difference in his coaching, by their recollections of that time, it seemed to be something you know, similar in that he started coaching players and analysing and showing them how to perform and uh, the skills and the acts of hurling. Um, then if you go on, just trying to think off the top of my head, like Eamon O'Shea for Tipperary was different. You know, he brought that difference in movement like that. When Eamon O'Shea came with that Tipperary team, um, like the belief and the traditionalists and everyone that was involved in hurling at the time was all about winning your own ball. And that if you kind of ran away from your man, you were kind of afraid of him. Towards when Eamon O'Shea came along, he changed all that and that movement was key. So you saw the likes of Lark Corbett, Owen Kelly, young Noel McGrath, probably 19 years of age, Jamie Callanan. Their games went to new levels, probably under Raymond O'Shea. That mightn't have had under the old regime of hitting down the ball and winning your own ball. Um, Cork, I don't know, was it Newtown Chandrum? Or, or it was, wasn't it? wasn't it Ben and, ben and Jerry's dad? Yeah, I think it was that time. Like the running game again was not a thing. Like it was kind of frowned upon, but like winning then makes everything right. And that Newtown Chandler and Cork team after that had huge success uh, with the running game. And um, probably boils down to using the coaching method 
does that suit your team maybe and you know dogging it out really against the public and not being swayed which leads us on to Kinnerk. Um not sure if I left out anyone there along the way but they were off time so Kinnerk, amazing man like um, you know I was speaking to someone down around there last winter and they said even away from coaching this man is a bit of a genius so I'm not sure how true that is but you're listening it probably is um, regards the you know, his success, like he's had huge success in with Clare on the 21s. And um, like I think even the minors that time, he had success with the minors, Munster, but I don't think they won the All-Ireland that year. And came back though and then was so successful with that Clare on the 21 team. Um, went on to the Clare senior team then and won with Davy Fitz back in 2013. Again, different methods again. You'd have to say went against Eddie, went with sweepers. But I'm nearly sure in the All-Ireland then they pushed up and nearly went the old traditional way, changed it totally up. And then fast forward on then to this current Limerick team, sure his, his success is off the wall. But his humility, I suppose, is and his ability to stay out of the limelight is is very intriguing too. Like you'd love to know that bit more about him. But yeah. um yeah, it probably boils down a lot too, Shane to uh, and Jared to he's a teacher by trade and profession. And like if you go back to all the great managers, coaches of in the GA and, and hurling, like teachers have had a huge role. And I would say myself, like, like the skills and the the, the, the tactics now, that's one side of it. But just getting the players to believe, getting the players to buy into everything, like that is huge because you're dealing with so many different personalities. And as we've seen with that Limerick, they have huge personalities, but they're able to manage them, Kanurka and, and Kylie. But te- the, these teachers, you see, they spend four years or three years up in St. Pat's or whatever, learning how to deal with different personalities as such. And... um it's probably a trade. Like you go off to be a block layer, you do a trade for four years. You go off to be a carpenter, an electrician, you do a trade for four years, learning the different uh, not the bits and nuggets. And I think teachers have a huge advantage in that, in that they're learning how to deal with, we'll say, Jerry Gilroy versus Shane versus Joe Malai. You know, it's has to be huge because you're a big personality there. You take plenty of management. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that, Tommy. <laughs> Come here, you've picked a 15 for us for um, for the season. So this is your All-Stars team. Um, yeah. Who who are the certainties? Yeah, so the certainties, um, I'll skip through to the full back lane. Two in the full back lane that I had is Mikey Butler and Hugh Lawler. So Hugh, Mikey Butler, right corner back number two. I just think, again, he's second year on the Kenny team. He had such an outstanding year last year. Got young hurler of the year, got All-Star. You wonder, like, is he going to have second year itis? But he didn't. He still marked the best of the best. Was brilliant all tr- through. Even in the other and final, um, he was super. Um, so Mikey Butler is right cornerback. Hugh Lawler, I think, is Kenny's player of the probably the last couple of years. He's an outstanding uh, fullback. He's a, the ability to play from the front. He's the ability to play from behind. He's massive as well in regards. He's brilliant in the air. I thought Ashling O'Reilly picked out his, his catch there in the second half of the other and final as a great moment. I thought it was unbelievable because you can't let Galan behind you. Uh, more, 99% of the time, he will catch that and it's goal. But he will all have caught it and down the field. Um, the half-back line then, I thought that was probably f- fairly straightforward. Dearma Burns, William O'Donoghue and Kyle Hayes. Burns has gone from level to level. like it, He's just gone up the levels every year. Like He started off as a kind of a guy that was wing-back many years ago that might score a couple of points. But now he's just an absolute... You know, they're like the hit all the wall of China there. They just the ball can't go past these guys. Um it's unbelievable. High balls, low balls, 
it's you just you just can't get past them. And he scored eight points in All Ireland final, seven points from play or seven points from freeze. And they're all tough frees. They're out in the wing most of them under the Hogan or the Cusick. Um William O'Donoghue then centre back. Ah, William O'Donoghue was just an outstanding season. Even if he was midfield, he would have been picked midfield. Um, I thought he was brilliant even up until the, the change over to centre back. Um, he's the kind of enforcer for them. He loves being that mean machine, I suppose. He revels in it, really. And in fairness to him, he's very good at it. So just from playing myself, to have a, a player like that that is kind of unselfish and doesn't probably look for the four or five points in play, it's unbelievable confidence for a wing back that you can go off and attack the ball, that you know there's a lad there that is thinking of the team all the time and will defend for you. The other wing back then is Kyle Hayes. You know, he's probably up for hurled year as well. Kyle Hayes, centre forward last year, wing back this year. This man is unbelievable. And we'll always go back to that Munster final goal. He oh. scored down part of Weave. That was just off the charts. So Kyle Hayes, yeah, is a certainty there. Midfield again, two more certainties. Shit are um, Darrow Donovan and David Fitzgerald. I thought David Fitzgerald had another outstanding season for Clare. His ability, and he gave Kyle Hayes enough of it any time they played him. And uh, which is a, a fair, a fair mark and a fair testament to the player. But David Fitz has definitely gone on to be one of Clare's main players, and he turns up every single day. And to be to be an All Ireland champion and to be the the Limericks of this world, you have to score a lot from play. And David Fitzgerald regularly comes up with three, four, five points. Darrell Donovan, then another probably lad that's probably up for hurl of the year. I thought he was outstanding for Limerick all year, especially when times were tough. This man is a busy body out around the middle. And um, nobody seemed to be able to get the better of, of Dara there this year. Um, then half forward line was tough. The full forward line then I thought picks itself. Aaron Galan, uh, full forward Connor Whelan and the other corner Owen Cody. Again, you know, if if each of them won the All-Ireland, both each of them would be up for her of the year, I'd say. So that's why they picked themselves. Galan, just the go-to man. I think the best forward in the country at the moment. I think he's, you know, even Hugh Lawler had a great battle with him the other day, but still he had a few important uh, possessions and points uh, and won a few frees. Conor Whelan then, you know, the one-trick pony, I think he's two tricks now. <laughs> so he was outstanding, I think. You know, he, he turned up every day, especially when they needed him, Conor Whelan. And the far corner then, Owen Cody. Uh, Owen Cody, just incredible year for, for such a young chap, two times young hurler of the year, always shows for the ball. and Very difficult as a corner forward maybe to have so many good games, but Thought Owen was outstanding this year. His dummy in the All Ireland final. I hope it doesn't get lost to the annals of history because it was amazing. Yeah, um, I haven't been able to look back at the game now. I just remember it from being there. All right, but yeah, no outstanding. Uh, Owen, there There's a few little dribbles there. I'd say that was part of that one there in the first half. Yeah, incredible. Uh, right. So there's a doubt about the goalkeeper, left corner back, and the half forward line. They're the only ones who weren't certainties for you. Yeah. So on goal, it was all Murphy or Nicky Quaid, really. At Ivor Quilligan had a great year as well for Clare, outstanding really. But the, the two lads, it was a straight shootout, I think. And I think puck outs, both of them are brilliant this year. I think uh, saves, both of them are brilliant this year. But I suppose the, 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 the save of the century in the All-Ireland semi-final was just this, the, the small one that really tipped the, the, the vote in Owen Murphy's favour. So Owen Murphy on the goal, but nothing between them. Okay. Um, right, yeah. Go on, sorry, yeah. And the other... Left corner yeah. then was... Another shootout between two Limerick lads, I thought, Barry Nash and uh, Dan Morrissey. Um, I thought Dan Morrissey was just, he's always Mr. You know, fix it. He can play full back, centre back, wing back. Um, 
just anywhere where they need him, he has always played. But full back is probably the hardest position in the in the field, and he's played there for the last couple of years. Um, but I suppose what helps is that Limerick defend as a team as opposed to individual. So he was absolutely outstanding. The other corner, so who I will pick though is Barry Nash. Right. Yeah. Bar- oh, have we lost Tommy there? The line appears to have gone. Yeah, we'll get him back. So it's uh, Barry Nash. He's gone for in the end. We we get the rationale behind that. I think mm. you know uh, as a distributor of the ball, as um, as somebody who was trusted by Limerick for the short puckouts when they needed him, uh, someone who always showed for it as as somebody who has um, transformed into a cornerback. Barry Nash having it. He's put together quite the career. Yeah, he's amazing. Uh, I think Sarah had opted for Dan Marcy as a dark horse for player of the, for herder of the year. Right, like saying he was he was definitely a late bolter with his performances towards the latter end. So. That's a tough one. Like leaving Dan Marcy out is tough. Yeah, it, look, it's it's going to be uh, it. It is going to be tough. I, <laughs> I, it'll be interesting to see if the All Star selectors skew more Limerick than Kilkenny mm. on the back of the final tending to count double or treble. Well, yeah, why is that like as well? Because well, it's the All final. So you've you've gone for Barry Nash there, Tommy. You're back. Yeah, so Barry Nash then in the car. I just think he's after. He's just an All Star. I think he's a guy you nearly have to mark every day you go out. He's a guy that's always attacking from the cornerback. Like it's rare that you would see that, and he has to be marked. I thought he was in every game he turned up. He was either an eight or a nine all season. So a Barry Nash cornerback. Um, I thought in the half back line, then I just thought just an honourable mention: Dearman Ryan and John Conlon. I thought they were unfortunately missed out. They just missed out because the other three Limerick lads were just off the charts. So Dearman Ryan a brilliant year. So did John Conlon. The half forward line then is the next one. And this was a tough, tough one, now, really, to be honest. But I went for Tony Kelly wing forward, TJ Reid centre, and Tom Morrissey, the other wing. Uh, Tom Morrissey gets it on the basis of, I thought when Limerick were under pressure all year, Tom Morrissey was the one man that showed up time after time after time. Remember the All-Ireland Championship? Well, it starts with the league all year. Then you go into the Munster round robin. Then you have a Munster final, All-Ireland semi-final final. So we can't just base it on maybe being outstanding in the final or that. So I thought Tom Morrissey just all year was just a go-to man. When everyone else was dipping in form, Tom Morrissey was there and you could depend on him and you could see the embrace maybe John Kiley had with Tom after the game. He knew how important that man was. All Ireland finals aren't just one on the day. They're one in a couple of months beforehand and Tom was crucial. Centre forward in TJ Reid. Listen, TJ at 35, 36 years of age, what he's doing is is amazing really in the modern game and he's not just standing up there in the full far line trying to win ball he's all over the field and his catch I thought in the All-Ireland finalist pass even into for, for the goal chance near the end just summed them up he never he stays going till the very end and we take free takers for granted um, like how many you know teams have lost games through vital frees TJ never rarely misses a free he's kind of a an 8, 9 out of 10 free taker all day long in the old days it used to be if you were a 7 uh, 7 out of 10 free taker you're a brilliant free taker now it's gone up the standard has gone up and it's mainly down to fellas like himself and Harkin he's the all-time hurler scorer all-time scorer hurling scorer of the, year, of the century so fair play to him the other wing forward in is Tony Kelly so this is between himself and Shane O'Donnell now listen I, I saw Shane O'Donnell was picked on the Sunday game and listen this, there was only you know such small things changed for me, but I just look back at the scoring of Tony Kelly during the year. Like he scored four points against Limerick in the round robin. He scored two four versus Cork. He scored thirteen points four from play against Watford. He scored six points against Limerick 
uh, in the Munster final, four from play. He scored three, four from play against Dublin. He scored two points, one or two points against Kilkenny, but he, he wasn't a, like he, he wasn't too bad against Kilkenny. Like he was on a bit of all. He just, he just don't have to score to be to be an outstanding, have an outstanding game. And how could you leave a, a lad off with, with that scoring? So Tony Kelly gets number ten, just slightly ahead of Shane O'Donnell. Shane O'Donnell was outstanding. And sorry, hurler of the year. Then your who have you got? Hurler of the year is I didn't really even have to think about this. Galan, right? Uh, yeah, I know. I know Kyle Hayes was picked in some quarters there, but like Galan all season was just brilliant. You couldn't mark him. He was unmarkable going back as far as the league. And this is a guy that didn't know at the start of the league was he going to be back on the panel or not. By God, when he came back, he came back in style. Like he plays from the front, he plays from behind. You just can't mark him really at the moment. I think your point about this being a, a season-long thing, like we now fully appreciate just how difficult it was for Limerick to get out of Munster and they won the semi-final and the final by nine points, notwithstanding the fact that the, the game was much closer in the final than the final scoreline suggests. But when the, the, the entire season was in the melting pot, it was Tom Morrissey and Galan who were showing up in those games and getting them through while the rest of the team were just getting the dirty diesel out of the system. So I think that's why I, I think you're right about Galan, to be honest. Yeah, and Flanagan as well definitely deserves huge credit. Um, to say he was quite in the semi-final and final, I suppose, Ger. I was worried about him for the final. But uh, in fairness to the young Tommy, uh, Tommy Welshier from Tullerone, like he his performances probably get lost because the other two lads are so good. Uh, Mikey Butler and Hugh Lawler. Tommy, I thought, had, had, like, if the other two lads weren't so good, he'd be an all-star. I thought he had an incredible season. And he was on Flanagan, like kept him quiet for the majority of that game. Like Flanagan was brilliant in that Munster Championship. Yeah. Like he was, you know, along with Galan, they're like the, the Twin Towers up there. Tommy, we got to go. I let you go. Thanks a million. That was great. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Tommy there giving us his uh, team of the year and his hurler of the year, Aaron Galan. And uh, we'll stick that team up on Twitter and you can you can have at it if you want. Uh, right. Here is Ashing O'Reilly at the Limerick Homecoming last night chatting with some young fans. We're back with Sue Ronan next. This is unbelievable scenes here in Limerick. Limerick are the champions. Yeah. What do you make of this Limerick team? They're this more Limerick than a team. team. They're a family. This yeah. Limerick team is the best team ever to ever play hurling. And why do you think that they're a family? Because they're, they're so good together and they, like, they have so much communication over the ball. And do you learn from that? Because you were telling me that you all play as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah I watch it and I, it helps me improve. And what club are you from? St. Patrick's. Are you all from St. Patrick's? Yeah. Munger St. Paul's. Very good. <laughs> St. Paul's on so top. you have a, a certain player on from your club. Who's that? Garrod Hegarty. Yeah. Have you ever met Garrod? Yeah. And what is he like? He's a, he's a nice man. He's sound. What boy? Has he ever took a training session? Yeah. Once for like a half an hour. Sure. Like. Oh. Yeah. Love this what was that like? It was very good. It helped me improve a lot. Mm. And what do you like about Garrod? Just a very good pair. Yeah. He's a leader and he carries the team. And do all of you dream of playing for Limerick one day? Yeah. No. no I, don't I wish I could play with Trudy United with that Sean Casey fella. <laughs> right, okay. Soccer fans getting a look in as well. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, they're in a sweet spot at the moment, Limerick. Um, and <laughs> uh, let's wait and see what happens. But um, yeah, they're pretty good. Uh, 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number if you want to get in touch with us this morning you can leave a comment youtube.com forward slash off the ball you can uh, watch us live every morning or of course you can listen to us as a radio show on uh, OTB Sports Radio just tell your smart speaker 
to play OTB Sports Radio and we are with you. Now, let's talk about Ireland. Uh, obviously, it's a massive game against Canada. The way the results have gone so far, it would suggest that this is going to be a tight game and that we're going to we're staring down the barrel of two very tight games. Sue Ronan is with us. Sue, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, guys. How are we keeping? The nil-all draw between Canada and Nigeria last night, uh, not, not last night, earlier in the week. Um, what does that suggest about the game that we're going to see tomorrow and even the game that we're going to see against Nigeria at the end? Um, well, it shows, I think, what we knew all along, that the group is going to be very, very tight. Um, I think I said it from the very beginning. I, I did fancy us to come out, but I, I still fancy us to potentially um, come out of the group. But, you know, I think we knew there was going to be very, very tight results uh, amongst the four teams. Um, and, and that's been the case so far. Canada seemed to have have had a, a slow start, but Nigeria, we can't forget, they're a very, very good team. They're, we, we mentioned that they've um, qualified from the CAF Confederation for, I think, almost every World Cup. They're very experienced. They're very fit, very physical. Um, Canada, obviously, Olympic champions are also a very good team. So, yeah, they had a chance to win the game. They missed a penalty. Um, Sinclair, who you'd normally put your house on uh, to, to score, I think she scored nearly 150 goals for her country. Christine Sinclair, she missed it. It was actually quite a weak penalty, I think. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's going to be another tight game for us tomorrow. And I think we're still well in this group. And I suppose that draw has, has really uh, brought us back into it following our defeat in the opening game. The breaking news this morning is that the Philippines have beaten New Zealand 1-0. So obviously New Zealand got the tournament off to a flyer when they beat Norway by a goal to nil. And um, now they've lost. So uh, we are seeing topsy-turvy results. We are seeing teams who we thought would be pushovers, like Haiti, for example, put it up to England over the course of the the 90 minutes in that one. So um, no one's taking anything for granted. In terms of the quality of the performance that Ireland put in, as the dust has settled on the Australia game, how well did we do? Um, I think we did very well. Um, you know, we, we we started off, we were quite, we were in a compact low block, which we knew we would be early on. We wanted to frustrate Australia. We knew they were going to have much more possession than us. Uh, we knew where their danger is, what, where, which were down the flanks. I mean, it was a, a real blessing in disguise for us that Sam Kerr was, was, was injured. And obviously, you don't want to wish anyone uh, an injury. But of course, that was a bit of good luck for us as she wasn't playing one of the top strikers in the world. So that was one less uh, danger to worry about. Um, so I think their biggest threat came from the wingers. Uh, their two wingers are very good. Vine, I think, was on the left and Rasso on the right and the fullback supporting them, trying to create overloads or trying to create 1v1s. And I think apart from a couple of, you know, maybe... A couple of dodgy, dodgy moments early in the game. I think we were quite comfortable. You know, we we, we frustrated them. Um, they were restricted to shots from distance. I don't think Courtney Brosnan had a shot to, make, uh, to save in the first half. And you know, then unfortunately, we were looking to try and I suppose nick a, a goal on the break. I think we didn't get forward in numbers enough in that first half. Anytime we did manage to get the ball forward, Caruso was isolated. Um, or Shiva was isolated or a couple of times you saw McCabe making runs forward and, you know, just wasn't working out for us. Um, and then, unfortunately, you have the, the silly penalty in the second half and then all of a sudden you're chasing the game and you have to really look at now, well, what can we do to, to get back into this game? And um, I think Australia's backs were up for a few minutes, obviously, after they scored. But I think after that, then the last 20 minutes, we sort of owned the game. And you wonder then, you know, could we have gone, gone, got at them maybe a little bit earlier? 
Um, I think the subs made a huge difference. Um, I think Abby Larkin was tremendous when she came on and she was fearless, you know, as you'd expect from a young one, but she's got such an amount of skill as well. Um, and we created two or three really good chances on another day we could have scored. So, um, yeah, I think we did well. I think we're the fact that everyone was disappointed that we didn't get something from the game shows that we did well. And Australia are a very good team. They're not one of the top five or six in the world that we mentioned before, but they're still very, very good and very experienced and have been at every World Cup or most World Cups uh, to date, where obviously this is our first. Would you expect um, Abby Larkin to start tomorrow, Sue, given, I guess, well, certainly the, the papers seem to be hinting that, that that's it's on the cards. Um, but obviously, I guess... For an eighteen-year-old from the start in a World Cup game is a little bit more daunting, I guess, than coming off the bench. Yeah, I don't think uh, Vera will start her. To be honest, I'd like to see her start, um, but I don't think Vera will start her. I think maybe she'll spring her from the bench again if we need her, or maybe whether you know at some point to change it up or to put on fresh legs. Um, she is fearless, uh, but we're, don't forget we're playing an opponent now who's a, a level up again. Like Canada are a stronger opponent. Um, than Australia um, some of the defensive players they have in that team are, are playing in the top t- teams in the world they're excellent um, you know so I'd be surprised if Vera does start her um, if she changes it up much you know we, we all know she she tends to to go with the same players and the same shape um, but certainly I'd like to see us get at Canada a little bit more I mean you know, we can't be gung-ho, of course, and we have to keep it tight. And, you know, we, we can't be naive either and think that we can take the game to them. But I think we need to pick our moments and maybe, you know, every it's so often you're going to go at them and you're, or you're getting one or two players, you know, m- more in attacking positions like our two wingbacks, for example. Um, you know, there has to be moments when they can maybe attack and, and, and try to support the front players because that was missing last week and especially in that first half. Lucy Quinn, another option too. I guess Marissa Shiva, the player who maybe didn't have the best of games against Australia. It was tough for her out there. Yeah, it was tough for her. I also didn't think Caruso had the best of games and she has done well up front. But And again, it's a difficult role. You know, she's up there, balls are coming to her. She probably had two or three defenders around her. She'd she'd no no options and it wasn't really sticking what was going up to her. Marissa Shiva, yeah, didn't, didn't have the best of games either. Um... You know, there was one or two. Well, we did play well in general, um, and, and some of the players really were that 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 as you need. There was one or two who you'd expect maybe to be the 9s out of 10 that were probably only maybe about 7 or 8, so they can maybe give a little bit more as well. I think we can certainly get more out of Katie. I thought Denise was all over the pitch, but her passing wasn't as you know as sharp as normal, um, whether she was still carrying the effects of the injury or, or, or what, I don't know. But at times she's caught in possession and you very, very seldom see Denise caught in possession. Um, so I certainly think one or two of the more experienced players can probably even go up another level. Um, I thought Niafahi was tremendous. I thought the back, the back uh, three, the three centre-halves were excellent. Um, I thought uh, Farrelly, when she was on the pitch, was very good also. Uh, uh, Heather, Heather Payne did, did well too. So... Yeah, I think, you know, I definitely think there's more in us and I think there's an opportunity to get something from this game uh, tomorrow. The back three and their lack of pace is something that Vera has spoken about, about uh, why she wants to stick with the back three for now. And, like, uh, it's very pragmatic and it's very honest in her assessment. You know, you could say stereotypically Dutch if we were to... um 
indulge ourselves in a bit of profiling sometimes they're very blunt when they talk about football in Holland it's their culture <laughs> ours is like a little bit oh you know maybe we have certain strengths that are they're like nah we're just not fast enough and she might be right Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, no, look, perhaps she is. And, you, you know, you do, when you're up against very fast and attacking players, you, you do have to have speed. But, you know, I think maybe what we, if we do lack speed there, um, I think we've got great experience. You know, you look at Nifai and the way she reads the game. I mean, she's been around the block. She might not have been at a, a World Cup or European Championships, but she's very, very good at reading the game. Likewise, Louise Quinn, again, mightn't be blessed with the, with, um, lots of pace, but, you know, is very strong, can can read what's going on, can can cover where it needs to cover, can maybe get in ahead of her of her attacker to win that ball. And then Megan then provides a little sweeping up, I guess. Personally, I'd like to see Megan in midfield. I really would. I think that would release Denise a little bit, maybe into a little bit more of an attacking role. Um she could sort of do that number six uh, role. She could sort of uh, sweep in front of the the back whether it's a back five or back four or whatever, but uh, I'd certainly prefer to see her a little bit further up the pitch. Um, but yeah, it is a back five, very much a back five, but I think in this game, you know, we can turn it into a back four at any given moment and get one of those wing backs in a forward position because both of them are well capable of getting up the pitch and indeed getting back if, if need be. So I, I think that's something that I'd certainly like to see. Jesse Fleming, that we, we've mentioned this morning, Sue, like a lot of the creativity from Canada, by all accounts, seems to come through her. Um, how is she best nullified? Is it Katie McCabe? I guess they're, they're familiar with each other as, as rivals with Arsenal and, and Chelsea. Yeah. So is, is that a job for Katie? She's a very good player, Jessie Fleming. And she didn't play the other day, I think, against Nigeria. Mm. Uh, she's excellent and she's had an excellent couple of seasons with Chelsea. Um, she tends to play on that right side, all right. So you're probably looking at maybe Katie getting into another another battle again and, and no better player to do that. So, yeah, look, I mean, we're just going to have to try to nullify her influence on the game because she can be a big influence for Canada when she's on form as she is for Chelsea. Um, we're certainly not going to go man to man or woman to woman, so to speak, you know, in a game. But obviously you just have to be wary and and you know, try to notify that threat that she has or that creativity because she definitely can make Canada tick. They're not as quick maybe on the counter-attack. Um, some people suggest that Canada as Australia perhaps were, but they still have attacking threats. Um, I, I, I guess the, the Irish wing-backs were pinned in a lot against the Australians and didn't have much room. You'd hope that maybe that'll be slightly different given the Canadians are, are a bit more laboured. Yeah, they are. And they're an older team as well, probably. But they're definitely not as, you know, not as direct and uh, down. And they don't use the wing play as much as the Australians do. Um, so, you know, from our point of view, I'd like to see our wing backs impose ourselves on it and, and give them something to think about. And as you say, don't get pinned in so much for all of the game. Of course, there's going to be times when they're going to have to be deep. Um, but I think, you know, let's give Canada something to think about and let's take the game to them at, at moments, you know, choose our moments. Um, we can't do it, of course, for 90 minutes and we'd be silly to try um, because they are a very, very good team. But, um, yeah, I think I, I definitely think there's there's a result in this one for us tomorrow. There has to be or we're going home effectively. You know, we, we have to get something. We definitely can't lose the game. Um, even a draw will keep us in it but we definitely can't afford to lose this game There is a world in which we do two <clears throat> two nil all draws in our next two games and uh, assume that Australia beats the other teams by two goals and we go through without having scored 
uh, that was Gavin Comiskey was pointing that out today. It could be um, similar to vaguely similar to Italia ninety. Uh, we'd probably take it at this stage, but I think we can be we can be a bit more ambitious, can't we? Like, there's no reason to fear anything that's left in the in the tournament from what we've seen so far. Yeah, no, I agree. And when you look at some of the performances we put in against better teams in the last year, you know, it shows that we have it in our locker to do it. I mean, look at the two games against USA. We didn't fear them. There was nothing at stake. There was nothing to lose. It was they were only friendly games. Um, but we were so good in those games, especially that first game. Like we totally outplayed them in the first half. And again, we've talked about it on this this program because they're really a top top team. They found a way to win. I think the in the first game wasn't it a, 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 a speculative cross or something from one of the wings came in and eluded Courtney Brosnan. Um, you know, and then there was a penalty as well. So, and we actually scored a goal. We were unlucky that was just allowed. So the performance we put in against them, the performance we put in against Australia at home in the friendly, against Sweden away when we took the game to them, against Norway or Finland away when we had to win or wanted to win to, to put our marker down in the qualifying group, um, just shows that we actually can play, you know, when we want to. So that's why I'm saying, you know, let's look and try to do that. Or I'd love to see us try to do that for periods in the game. Let, let's give the Canadians something to worry about and the Nigerians also, um, because we really have some good players and some good footballers, um, you know, who can create and, and, and can show the best of themselves if, if that's the, the style of play that we're, we're, we're going to use. You'd hope that's the legacy of the tournament, that actually... They take incredible confidence about the fact that they're mixing it in a World Cup, top 32 teams in the world, and they don't look in any way out of place. No, they don't. And you mentioned at the beginning there, I think, yeah, they've probably lost now. New Zealand were 1-0 down to, to Philipp, the Philippines, and there's been some really tight results. Like Haiti really put it up to England. They were very, very lucky to get out of that game with the win. Um, a twice-taken penalty they needed. France, uh, France couldn't beat... Um, who were France playing? I can't remember now. They, they couldn't. Uh, pardon me? Jamaica? Jamaica, that's right, yeah. And and you had um, Bunny Shaw up front who caused them huge amount of trouble. Um, and there's been some some games, some some matches like that that have been really, really close and the top teams have found it difficult to get the breakthrough or to win. So the gap is definitely closing. And I know we often talk about rankings and teams ranked third, 50, their teams ranked 20. You know, the team ranked 50 might be there by virtue of not having played games, you know, but in actual fact, they're, they're probably better than their actual ranking uh, in their own confederation. So the gap is definitely closing. We don't look a bit out of place. Um, let's hope now this, the legacy really is the start that we now know how to qualify for major tournaments. We've got over that hump and that we can continue to do so in the, in the coming years. That's the thing as well, Sue. Like we, we don't really have much to, f- we don't have a lot to fear against the Canadians. They are Olympic champions by, by rights. But as Colin was saying earlier, like the, some of the stats are in Canada. Wouldn't fill you full of fear. So they, they haven't scored more than once against the European team in the last 13 games or meetings. They've only won one of their last six. That was a game against Brazil in February. So, I mean, there are causes for optimism here, you'd imagine, for Ireland. No, absolutely. And Canada are definitely a team you can get at. Of course, they're one of the top teams. Uh, they're still not in that league, the, the USA, the Germany, the France, as I call them, that, you know, they're, they will find ways to win. Japan, now, I've mentioned I fancy Japan all along. They've been very impressive uh, in their win. Um, they dispatched Zambia really, really well. They scored five goals. So they're not in that league. Of course, they're a very good team. They've qualified for, for lots of, of World Cups. But we can certainly get at them. 
Um, I remember when I was coach, we played Canada in the Cyprus Cup uh, going back, whatever, 2015, 2016. And they were similarly, you know, a top team then. And, and we were even less ranked and probably very few professional players in the squad at the time. And it was one of the playoff games for maybe seventh or eighth or fifth and sixth, actually, I think it was in the tournament. We came so close to beating them because we had no fear of them. Um, and it, it took their manager at the time with Megan Campbell taking her long throws. It took her man, the, the manager at the time to try and block her in his dugout, um, in his technical area when she was taking the throw ins because we were really hurting them so much. And we took the lead in that game actually. And we, we unluckily lost 2-1, but we hadn't got any fear, you know. So I really feel we don't have fear, um, against the Canadians that we can get a result out of them. So uh, in terms of the legacy, right, um, there's watch parties in Dalymount Park and there's hundreds of kids going. And and I know from the WhatsApp groups of my kids football that like there's been a surge in interest. Um, You'd hope that we've learned some lessons from 40 years ago, 30 years ago when we qualified for Italia 90 and there was there was literally no legacy. There was no improvement in facilities. The surge of numbers, like it's definitely the bit where the playing numbers surged, but we didn't quite cement that with an upswing in domestic fortunes um, it feels a little bit like we're at least thinking about how to maximise an improvement in returns from the government and from um, facilities at the moment what's your sense about somebody who kind of understands this whole thing and has has seen firsthand for the last while um, how difficult it has been to get the game going what do you hope is coming next how how well do you think we're doing or, or are prepared for it well, you can see the surge there already with these watch parties and everything on social media and just the following the team ha- has now and the fact that clubs are saying that they're inundated now, girls wanting to join traditional, what, what we would call ma- male you know, clubs, male dominated or, or just traditional male, all male clubs are now catering for girls where they wouldn't have before. Um I certainly know it's still an issue around the country uh, facilities and in many clubs around the country at grassroots level, the girls team is still left to last on the weekend to get access to the pitch or the girls match might be the first one cancelled if there's a, you know, an issue with, with weather um, and they, they might play the boys games off first. So you would certainly like to see that, you know, that, that type of thing not happen and that more equality now in every club that the girls are just as important as the boys um, and the importance goes according to the level of the team, whether that's the women's team are playing in the National League, they get more preference over the boys team is maybe playing in a junior league or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think we definitely are in a better position to cater for the numbers now. I would I would like to think I'd like to hope we are. Um, I've always spoken then about that legacy. I'd really like to see our, our National League. Uh, go professional at some point. Now we're a bit off that. I think we've just gone semi-professional this year. But I think we need to be careful there too. You know, I think it should be quality over quantity. Um, There's no point having 12, 14 teams in a national league or 12, 14 teams in underage national leagues, you know, and you're getting those big results. Because you look at the WSL in England, I think what if they got eight or 10 teams at the moment, but it's taken them like 12 years to get up to that that level or that number. Um, So it's not about just opening it up to anyone that wants to come in or that can achieve club licensing. I think we need to be looking at quality um, because especially as most of our best players at the moment are national team they're all playing abroad so you know do we have that depth there we want to create a really really strong competitive league so I think we should look we, we need to be looking more about the 
quality over quantity there and hopefully then a couple of years down the line we're looking at a more professional league Last question for you on this and, and um, I, I didn't mean to bring this up today but just the I do wonder if there's a room for some centralised contracts for players and I know it's very difficult for so what club benefits is it the club with all the money is it the club with the rich owner you know how do you work that out it's very difficult and does every does everybody have to get one like back in the days of the basketball where everybody had an American it's like everybody's allowed one centrally contracted player but it would allow the FAI to have control of the players and make sure that they were full time and every club has one who maybe is a part time player and a part time football administrator or coach or something I think we just need to be a little bit creative about how we get there yeah, no, absolutely. And these are ideas that, you know, I would have put forward many years ago because I saw it happening in other countries and it was working. And it was probably before there was professional leagues, to be fair. Um, I know they did it in Holland initially when their national league started up for, up um, first going way back. And I think Vera would have been uh, very much involved at the, t- at the time. They literally placed the players in, they were on con- centralised contracts with the FA and they placed the players that you didn't all, you didn't have 10 at one club. Um, and that's something that unfortunately we've seen happening in, in Ireland over the last number of years. You've, and particularly at our underage, um, we've, we've seen, I know Dave Connell gets frustrated. He often sees some, this is before the introduction of the under 19 league. You'd have some of the players from the underage squad who are really good enough to be playing at the top level, sitting on the bench, not getting game time. And that doesn't do anything for their own career or for the national teams. So it's something potentially to look at. In Holland, it's definitely easier to do because it definitely is a smaller country and travel to and from. Players can still live at home and travel to wherever they're playing. Whereas if you have a player from Donegal and you're placing her on a team in Dublin or in Cork, but she's still living or going to college in Donegal, that's probably a little bit more difficult. But I I agree with you. We do need to be a little bit more creative and try to bring the competitiveness of of that league up and and look at trying to do that rather than just trying to make it bigger. um, Because yeah. Yeah, and look, if there was a transfer fee to come, then that would go to the FAI, and that might help to pay for it over the years. So uh, there's definitely, if there's a will, there's a way. Sue, great stuff. Thanks, many for joining us as ever. All right, guys, take care. Sue Rowland giving us her thoughts ahead of the game uh, tomorrow. It's eight fifty. Carl Milani's with us. Carl, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, lads. How's it going? What's going on? Well, really good game at the Women's World Cup this morning and a big result for the Philippines because they secured a famous victory. They beat the New Zealand by a goal to nil. Serena Bolden with the goal there for the winners. And New Zealand had a couple of chances in the second half as well. They had a goal disallowed, but it didn't quite happen for them today after their great win in the first round of fixtures in Group A. So the other game in that group between Norway and Switzerland kicks off now in the next few minutes at nine o'clock. So Norway, who are the highest ranked team in that group, actually have no points now ahead of that game. The other three teams all have three. Earlier today, uh, overnight, Colombia, after a winning start in Group H, they were 2-0 winners over uh, Korea Republic in that encounter. So that's the action at the uh, Women's World Cup today. Good news for Ireland overnight in swimming because Daniel Whiffen has qualified for the Paris Olympics. He clocked a new Irish record time of 7 minutes, 43.81 seconds. That was in the 800 metres freestyle heats at the World Championships in Japan. And that's enough to secure his place in the Games and passage through to the final of that event tomorrow. And later today, Mona McSharry back in the pool for the final of the 100 metres breaststroke. That's set to take place around about lunchtime uh, Irish time. Some injury news for the Kerry ladies footballer Shearfer O'Shea, their captain, has been ruled out for the rest of the season. She suffered an ACL injury in training over the weekend. Kerry playing Mayo in the All-Ireland semi-final this Saturday. That game is at Semple Stadium in Thurles. And the Irish women's cricketers in action in their women's one-day international against Australia today. Their uh, scheduled match on Sunday was abandoned due to the terrible weather over the weekend and play due to get underway this morning at 10.45 and thank Hopefully the weather looks a little bit better.
Christine Sinclair for Canada, right? Her stats, international level. So she's 40. She's played in six World Cups. Made her debut for Canada at 16. She's got 324 appearances for Canada. And she scored 190 goals. Not bad, is it? That's scandalous. And I think she's in line to become the first player to score at six World Cups. But she missed the penalty uh, last week. Hopefully she doesn't do it tomorrow. Yeah. So, uh, let's see. But they they weren't overly impressive in their first game. So, uh, there's plenty of potential for a result hopefully tomorrow. Yeah, hopefully they're in crisis and uh, we can somehow benefit from it. Or else it's like, oh, they were just getting, you know, mm. they've decided now, no, come on. Yeah, get we've, the act together. We've got a record breaker no, here. A lot of the games have been quite tight. I know yesterday there was a couple of one-sided matches, but by and large, a lot of the games have been quite tight and there hasn't been a whole lot between the teams, mm. even allowing for some of the gaps in the rankings between some of the sides, uh, which hopefully will give Ireland a little bit of hope going into that match tomorrow. Well, if you looked at the England-Haiti game beforehand, you're like, this is going to be 6 7 8 nil. Yeah, but like... Jamaica, uh, France, the same. Nil all unbelievable. Draw. Yeah. So it's it, maybe it's going to be one of those tournaments where you're just going to have a load of surprise results. Although I guess in the in, in the men's World Cup as well, you had Saudi Arabia beating Argentina in the groups, and mm. we know what happened then. So yeah, yeah. you know, teams maybe just need one wake up call in the group stage and then take off from there. Hopefully, that's not the sake with Canada, or the case with Canada rather. Yeah, it's um, but it's a big game tomorrow. I think the. There's a huge amount of interest in the Irish team. I think and tomorrow's kickoff time at one o'clock isn't it? Irish time, which should mm. lend itself to another really big television audience and you know watch parties and stuff and people watching in offices around the country. And I think there is a fair degree of hype around the team now, which is great. And that'll only be heightened uh, if they can get a result tomorrow. Uh, rumors of Emiliano Martinez transfer to Inter Milan, Jer? Inter, right? Oh, Nana, of course. There's been rumors. To... There's been rumors yeah, that it was Spurs, that it was Chelsea, that it was PSG. No, I never quite thought. Is, that, is, is he going to go to France to live in? You know, having like done the whole thing with the oh, trophy yeah. to the French and like, <laughs> you know, surely not the most shit housery against him. <laughs> and maybe that's it. Maybe he would go, and it would be like the exact right thing for his career to be like, ah, look, I'm actually I'm a good guy. They love yeah. him then. Yeah, or maybe he won't well, move anywhere. You know, obviously the Parisians, the PSG fans, when the rest of the country would hate him, and that'll be perfect. Yeah. Yeah, you got to take a lot of the transfer stuff with a pinch of salt, yeah. though, don't you? Because like Spurs are interested in in Mbappe apparently, and you know <laughs> this sort of stuff. Um, like the Mbappe stuff, I know you're chatting through it, and it's just it's just borderline disgusting, really. Isn't the money it? involved uh, when you think? I think the Guardian's reporting that he could be on seven hundred million a year when you consider commercial arrangements and image rights and all the rest of that, mm. uh, which is just astronomical stuff. Because I, I can imagine, like, and that was my point earlier, like obviously now I, I will make the adult decision, knowing what I know about Saudi Arabia, not to watch that football. But I, I think as a kid, if if, if, I, if Mbappe was one of my favourite players, I would be walking around in an Al-Halal jersey with Mbappe on the back. And maybe nobody might... But your parents would have had to buy surely, it for you. Yeah, Do you know but, what I mean? Like, but they mightn't have thought of, you know... Uh, some parents uh, okay, might think fair of, enough. You, you don't yeah. think, yeah. I, I trust that they would have. But, but I mean, there are parents out there that maybe aren't... Well, just I don't know. I, like, that. Were, there, were there loads of parents buying Springbok jerseys during apartheid for their kids? I don't think there were. No. I think, football, I think sport has changed a little bit in that people tend to follow players now rather than teams, yeah. don't they? Um, which might change it a little bit. But yeah, I can't see Al Hilal penetrating the. Has 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 Cristiano already? Because he's the ultimate example of that, right? Where his football no longer merited him being supported, and they're paying him is it 120 million a year? Is that all he's getting? Mm. No, he's getting 170 million a year. Is it? <laughs> he's getting. Yeah. Anyway, look. Where does it all end? Who knows? Yeah. 
Carl, good stuff. Thanks, lads. It's uh, 8.56 here on OTB AM this morning. Make sure you check out the Lunchtime Wrap today, bringing you all the latest sports news. That's with thanks to Deliveroo. Check out the app for some great match day meal deals across the World Cup. Deliveroo, food, we get it. After the break, Alan Quinlan in studio. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Right, it's 8.57, Alan Quillen is with us. Alan, good morning to you. Morning, lads, how are you? Homework for the off-season. A little bit, yeah. 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 Uh, so we asked you for, are the rules you have to be on the field here or just, yeah, okay, so you were on the field for, these are your five favourite tries? Five most important tries? Ones that probably stand out. Um, how did you pick them? So you had to be what, on the pitch. What came to mind first? Well, I was in the squad for yeah. uh, the one in Bordeaux. I, I, I picked one from there. Woody had picked uh, John Hayes' try against Toulouse in Bordeaux. I, I picked Rogers' try there because it was an incredible team try. Um, the ones that came to mind, really, um, my, my international career was kind of heavily disrupted, obviously, from 2003 with my shoulder uh, injury at the World Cup. Um, kind of got my way back into the squad um, and then I had my knee injury in 06 so I had a kind of a period there where it was a very successful period for Ireland winning triple crowns and championships um, up and kind of got back in 06 or 07 for that World Cup in France didn't play there so um, and then back I kind of got back in again in, in, in 08 and a bit of 09 so I was in and out of the squad a fair bit and um, some of Basically, that was injuries I think Woody said in fairness he was very complimentary of what he said about me as a player and it kind of made me think God yeah if I was kind of more calmer um, controlled um, and probably not as hard on myself um, I probably could have got the best out of myself because from a talent point of view I was I probably had what was required to to be play consistently at that level. So there's. Can I just? I, we had we didn't plan to talk about this, but um, that's a realization that a lot of people don't come to, right? Yeah. Wayne so, Rooney has had a similar kind of like, oh, he needs the anger, otherwise he won't be. But actually, it's, it's that's nonsense. You didn't need to play. I don't, I don't even think it was completely the anger because that kind of perception is 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 with me a little bit because. Um, um, I would have liked to think that bit of fury and, and stuff helps me for sure. But you can control that now. Yeah, but I think there's a lot of self-doubt and self-belief stuff as well, which can affect, um, do you feel comfortable? I always said this before, that when I went into Ireland squads, particularly in the earlier days, I didn't feel, God, am I, I, I doubted myself. And I didn't, like I remember even the France game in 2000, and um, in one in Dublin, it's my first start in the Six Nations. It's kind of a dream come true. I was there as a kid watching matches. Did they win 9-8? Do we miss a kick in the last game? Oh, no, we won 22-15. Oh, okay, we win, okay. Um, one, I, I picked one, Drico's right. try, okay. yeah, where it was, he scores in the corner. There's a bit of controversy about the grounding and all that. But, you know, I even look back at that game yesterday and I think I, I was kind of standoffish. I was nervous about making a mistake. So a little bit of that was the mindset of, of being afraid to, to make mistakes. Um Obviously, there's another element to that as well about um, not not kind of not looking after myself off the field, but not understanding the level of consistency you need to, to have around your training. Because um, I always pl- train pretty hard, but probably inconsistently. I never went down and did a fitness session and didn't try hard. I always kind of pushed myself to the limit. But I probably, just to get myself in the best shape, and I think um, that was in 03 where I, I, I kind of, I'm 28, 29, and I'm thinking... 
it's late, but at least I'm here now. Everyone's fit and available for that World Cup. I was in great shape, really good condition. I was so much quicker than I realised I could be. Uh, hence, I scored the try and, and you know, had the pace to, 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 to go off that. So, yeah, there's of course, it brings back some kind of... God, I wish I had... Um, well, you know, I have 27 caps. Most of the lads I played with are 70, 80, 100 caps, you know, or more. Um, I guess my, my question was, is do you think that there'd be a role for you somewhere in rugby to have those conversations with people? I don't know. Um, I, I, what I would try and say to younger people is, is <clears throat> the younger players particularly... Um, is to express the pressure and talk to people who've maybe, you know, been there, done that. Some people are more natural. Like, I always looked at Axel across the dressing room and went, God, I wish I was like Axel. He was just do-your-job type mentality. And, you know, like, you even hear Woody in the podcast talking about when we got drawn against Toulouse in 2000 in that semi-final in Bordeaux, which is kind of unthinkable stuff. Um, God, that's a disaster mentally. Yeah, sure, that's us done. We get to semi final and it'll be a great trip to France. But Axel was the one who said, "Well, we'll just have to go and beat them." He he had that kind of just calm mentality, and he would have been my under twenties captain in Shannon when I went into Shannon first. I remember going, God, I, I want to be like him. I want to be calm and controlled. And look, he had a Eddie Halvey and myself on either side of him in a back row, which you could say was an incredibly talented back row. And we, we ended up playing for Munster for a period of time together. We dominated with Shannon in, in the All-Ireland League for a number of years. Um, and, you know, he was kind of in between me and Eddie, kind of keeping us calm and kind of giving us a bit of rope to go and play and just make an incredible line break or do something special. But it was just uh, most parts of his game were, were were nailed on, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, like so for, I, sh- for sure, if I could, if I could yeah, share that. It, with, any, with anyone playing sport, you want to try and be in a state that you're kind of not over animated or over anxious. Yeah. Because anxiety brings... Tension and but you know, still you still need to access free. the fury and you still need to access that but just have a a, a, a means of controlling it and releasing it when for sure yeah. and the game is cha- all sport has changed so much more nowadays because um, everybody has a sports psychologists and people to help them and coaches are o- much more understanding of the type of person you have not everybody's the same you know Declan Kidney would have been really good. I think in, in, in a kind of a, a positive turnaround for me after 2000 because I probably was at that stage where I took things for granted and I expected because I was talented that I would just get picked on teams. Um, and that happened a bit up to that point. But, you know, I played the six pool games in, in, in 99-2000 and there's a break then from January to April. Uh, my form wasn't great with Shannon. Um, well, and where that was scrutinised heavily back then, we would have all went back and played with our clubs, and you know I get to April and I'm dropped for the start the quarter final against Stade Francais in Thomond Park, and I couldn't really see why. Who came in for you? Eddie Halvey right. came in, and you know Eddie Eddie was unbelievably talented. So Wally, David Wallace, Eddie Halvey, and Axel played in the background. I was on the bench, and that was my first big kind of blow. And of course, 
I didn't see the fault in myself. I, I kind of had and a bit of bitterness with Declan yeah. and, you know, I was on the, I came off the bench in the quarterfinal, didn't come off the bench in Bordeaux or didn't come off the bench in the final against Northampton. Ended up sitting down with Declan Kidney that summer, <coughs> um, kind of opening up about the way I feel and how, you know, that anxiety and stuff like that. And also being honest and saying, look, I need to get more consistent in my training, my attitude and my mentality. And we, we got on like a house on fire and he helped me so much. So my point here is, you know, obviously the coach has to look at not everybody with the same in the same view. Some people do have a little bit more stress and pressure and it's about getting the best out of them. But I would say in the modern modern sport, everybody has that ability now on somebody to talk to or somebody to kind of who can see the players and go and have a chat with them and say, well, uh, Joe Bloggs is a little bit more anxious. Um, we need to keep him calm and and really kind of focus on your strengths. So one of the things I would have probably didn't understand is I always tried to focus on my weaknesses. Yeah. And I forgot what I was good at. And, and so many times players, people, Woody was was one who got, uh, he kind of pushed me to be on a tour in 2002 to New Zealand. He was always telling me, get the ball in your hands and just run. Do something because you, you can pass, you can offload. Whereas, you know, I thought, God, when I get up to the Ireland setup, I... I can't make a mistake here. So I was much more comfortable a lot with Munster and um, and certainly for young people, it's about, you know, figuring that out and asking people who have the experiences um, and times are totally different nowadays. Every, you know, even, you know, the approaches from coaches, how to deal with players, even in, right in amateur sports right across the board is um, is very good nowadays, I think. Yeah, I, I, I know you, the point you're making about in, in the professional environment, there's, definitely way more access to uh, proper sports psychology and performance coaching but it's even kind of earlier it's like the 13 to 15 year olds who probably sure and how, how do you give it, uh, someone who's lacking that little bit of confidence or ability to take the bull by the horns and run up that wing in a soccer match and take on his man because he's really quick he's quite skillful and he's brilliant at crossing the ball how do you make him believe that if he's kind of nervous about taking on his man because he may he thinks if I give the ball away here you know how do you tell a kid like that just have a crack and the next if you look if he takes if the defender takes the ball off you do it again and again and eventually you know one of these runs that you make is going to lead to a goal and it's the bigger picture and it's just about breaking it down into small pieces like that I think which so the point there about kids is coaches now can see a little bit Their, their eyes are more open to one or two guys who have the potential and the ability how do I give them confidence and make them believe that it is okay to make a mistake I thought mistakes were what you were going to be judged by after the performance a lot when I was younger well they um, probably were yeah and coaching you know what? Has, has changed a lot but, mm. but yeah but you know what if you focus on all the mistakes you're going to make what, you know you look at a, a 9 and a 10 now a scrum half and an out half and a rugby match they're going to handle the ball 70 or 80 times in a game are those 70 or 80 times they're going to touch the ball going to be brilliant moments? They're not. There's going to be three or four mistakes in there. And if we, if you forget about the other 70 good moments where they delivered and kicked well, you know, so it's about focusing on the positives and just getting it. I'm not saying that it was, it was all negative. God, I look back at some of the Munster matches and even some of these tries and I was like, wow, that, is that me in the field? <laughs> I, I was actually playing brilliant here and I was looked like I was grabbing the ball by the horns. 
Uh, we should talk about this one then. So the first one is Ron Nogara versus Toulouse in uh, 2000. This is in Bordeaux and it's a semi-final of the Heineken Cup. Is that right? Yeah, that's the semi-final when, um, you know, and, and Woody spoke about the, the John Hayes try, which was an incredible try. And this was a kind of against the odds kind of performance. And nobody expected um, a victory here. As I said, um, Toulouse were incredible squad. Uh, we uh, we were on the back of obviously a brilliant a brilliant position of 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 beating Saracens twice in the pool stages. Um, it, it was just a phenomenal team score. I think it was a scrum outside um, the Munster twenty two. Um, the ball was it's fudged past to Mikey Mullins. A little switch with Jason Holland. Uh, John Kelly comes in off the wing with another switch. Uh, he gets tackled on his back around the 10-yard line, pops it to Axel, he makes a break, then Munster come back on the left-hand side to Ant- Anthony Horgan makes a break, and then it's back in field, and, and you know, someone who was um, incredible for Munster back then was Dominic Crotty. He, he had played for Ireland when he was quite young, he was full back in this team, uh, he handled the ball a number of times in, in all those phases, and he makes that unbelievable uh, pacey run onto the ball near the end gets half tackle and pops it up to Rog and it's a try under the post it's a phenomenal score if people look back and watch it um, like team score yeah it is <laughs> and the one thing that kind of jumped out at me is Toulouse never got to the point where they could get their defensive line set if you watch it um, and you know <clears throat> Rog's ability to run onto the ball was 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 superb and his timing um, and then being able to deliver passes and stuff like that. Um, you know, if you look back at the back line that day, Mikey Mullins was again somebody probably a bit like me in the sense that Mikey lacked a bit of confidence at times. But when you gave him that confidence and, and ability, you know, he was brilliant for Munster. Um, he was part part of the reason why we came back over in Saracens and Vicarage Road that season and and turned around a big deficit at half time to win that game. He was just superb. But that for me was was a try that just comes to mind straight away. You know, um John Hayes' try was similar. John is on the ground, Woody picked that one. You know, Woody Woody's incredible run up the touchline. Um and Keith Wood and John Langford were phenomenal for Munster that year. Same game. Same game, yeah. Woody makes a charge up for, for John Hayes' try up the wing, pulled his calf. Um but, you know, both Langford and Woody were we, they brought us to a different level and that was kind of a very significant period of time for that whole group about moving on to the next level and understanding professionalism and what was required and stuff and they were really central to that Woody and John Langford because uh, obviously Keith Will was just coming back from uh, Harlequins for that one year yeah for one year yeah, yeah. and he was, he was brilliant and I think we, we started to believe in ourselves and you know like I said the, the Axel comment of will we just have to go and beat him um and it was one that stands out for a lot of people, you know, in, in, in particularly the Munster supporters as well who went to Bordeaux. Um, obviously, there was heartache in the final, but, you know, watch that try back. It's, it's a sensational score. He scored 21 points, Raj, in that game. Like he's, I think yeah, he, his kicking was brilliant. Unbelievable. As well, yeah. He was 23 years of age, but already a leader in the team. Yeah. Jason Holland as well. Yeah. What a player. You know, I, I, again, looking back at some of these games. Someone who came over playing club rugby with Middleton got called in in 1999-2000 season uh, for World Cup warm-up against Ireland in Cork. 
um, because we couldn't find any players and he went on to be absolutely brilliant for Munster. Some game. It was just a phenomenal game and it was one that um, it was kind of baffling in the end. Uh, the rugby that was there and like if you look at the stars that they had and even their physique um, a little bit towards maybe us um, they're bigger, stronger, more athletic looking but I think we were getting to well, obviously it was a lot of fight and passion but that Munster team was, was fit getting fitter getting stronger um, becoming a bit more skillful so I think it was a real important crossroads for that group that whole season you know like because that's on the back of as I said being to Vicarage Road getting an incredible win over against Saracens beating Saracens at home um, you know what a year it was it ended up in disappointment in Northampton and, uh, in Twickenham in the final but yeah. that was an incredible score from Rog yeah but the the uh, the journey that the team is on at the end of that game that that's my first recollection ever of hearing Fields of Athenrye at a rugby match is when the Munster fans sing after the game in Twickenham and it is a lament for something that's lost but it's also a celebration of the fact that you're like the second best team in Europe slash maybe the best but um, I don't know it just it was a, a moment in Munster's history where it's the birth of something really really important the style of play is also yeah it's should... starting to improve yeah and it's different this isn't all about just kicking it um, but when you have two young halfbacks like Peter Stringer and Rog and um, you know really good attacking centre uh, in Mikey Mullins and but you were all passing the ball yeah footballers as well people who are trying to keep the ball alive as well and, and um, not just kind of run straight at people so it's definitely the start of something really positive uh, let's talk about the next one is uh, Draco versus France in 01 so this is the game in Dublin you were talking about yeah um, you could pick look that I was trying to go back in other Ireland games that I was involved in and, and pick out you know other tries but this this one jumps out because it was my first start in Dublin as I said and uh, I was probably shaking like a leaf in, the, in when the anthems are happening and you're looking up at the crowd but I just I you know Drico obviously got the three tries the year before in Paris um, this game is the first time in 40 years that Ireland back to back wins against France um, it's a really big kind of moment again there's probably a bit of expectation that France win this game like they've done for the previous 10-12 years I think there was Ireland hadn't beaten France in Dublin they usually hammered us um, yeah, well, the ones in Dublin are a bit tighter. Uh, the ones in Paris are were around that time where, you know, the year before, obviously, that trend was booked. 98, I think it was very close as well under Warren Gatland. Um, but this, I just, again, looking back on it, I remember at the time thinking, God, Brian O'Driscoll is just phenomenal. Like, he was making line breaks and stepping people in this game and, and going clear if you like um, right up to that point um, he two clean line breaks or two or three clean line breaks in that game up to that point and I, I just remember the try was um, again it was inside our half and um, it was a scrum midfield Ireland go left Rob Henderson makes a bit of a show and go charge uh, gets through Olivia Manye, um offloads to David Wallace and again you know Wally is um, this incredible ball carrier and this has this acceleration and ability to defend and he offloads a little inside pass to Drico and then 
it's just pace. Um, Wally's on, pass is almost invisible. Yeah, like it's it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On the replay, you have to go back and go, how did but he get it? But it's Stricker's <laughs> anticipation to kind of f- track the ball as well. And and obviously, he gets to the corner and, and there's big debate. Does he ground about, it as a pundit now? You can well, see I it. think if you look back in it now and, you know, the, the, the downward pressure, fingertip stuff, and we mm. see some of these tries that are s- scrutinised for a long time. And funnily enough, I, I couldn't remember at the time, there was a TMO uh, Brian Campbell, an English TMO, was looked at that try, and it took him three minutes. So there's a big kind of break. Three minutes is a long time now for somebody to look him back in a try over and over and over again. He gave the try because I think he felt there was fingertip pressure on it. Um, uh, I watched it ten times there, and I can't tell if he. We were saying that. Yeah, even watching it back, it's hard to judge it. I think there is there is a bit of fingertip bit of pressure. pressure there that that's we were, why he gave him and it's kind of given the benefit of the well, doubt. Well, I was going to say we were saying at the weekend. Uh, Owen Cody has the amazing dribble where it's Keen Lynch who he sends to the mm. to the shops oh, with the dummy, and I think the referee gave him a free because it was so good. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. You know, Sorry, that that's. Yeah. I think he gets a little bit of fingertips here, but look, there's so many tries you could pick um, for 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 Drico. I just think this the anticipation the pace and the ability as he was getting tack- tackled by Christoph Lamazon into into touch um, it was brilliant they did an incredibly strong side when you think of Bernard, Philip Bernard Sal Palouse Galtier Serge Betson Christoph Domici we've been, Dominici um, we've been having this conversation Olivia Magne this conversation has bubbled up about uh, the most the best Irish rugby player the greatest Irish rugby player of all time and I would argue that without this period of time that we wouldn't have had Johnny Sexton winning European Cups without O'Driscoll emerging that like the hat-trick in, in yeah. Paris well it was about belief and confidence and, and actually thinking as Irish people you can go and win these games so certainly the three tries the Drico scores in Paris and it's just kind of like you, you're only 20 years of age and you're this is just normal then for other people coming through that you've something to, to look at and a reference point to say, well, this Irish team or this team has done it. Um, and it's a little bit like the province is going to France for the first time winning yeah. certain things. Because I remember that really well when we played. One of our goals in 97, 98 was to win for the first time in France. So Munster in the previous year or two had been to uh, to France in European games and been beat by 40, 50 points. Yeah. So... It's not about keeping the score down. It's actually saying, we actually win. want to win there. Yeah. So we go to Colombia and win for the first time in France. I think it was 97, 98. And then you go, well, the next step is, okay, you're, you're against Toulouse or you're against Biritz or you're against Stade Francais. Can you go and the beat teams. them? So yeah. it's, it's a process. And certainly that's a very, very valid point that, you know, maybe the... The foundations were dug for for uh, yeah. you know that Look, platform. We're, we're splitting hairs, obviously, and uh, yeah, it's a very it's it's an interesting debate. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but I do feel like there's you have to give extra kudos to the founding fathers of the whole thing. Um, so the next one is Peter Stringer. You've got the assist for this one. Yeah, I got an assist. I was trying. I wasn't trying to put my own tries in. And again, I'd like to say I could easily put Woody's try against Saracens in there in two thousand in Tomon Park. It's the one where they score up the field in the 77th minute uh, and it looks like the crowd is silent and we're not going to beat Saracens here. Saracens are going to win the game here in, in Thoman Park. Um, Golov kind of pulls us together and literally says, we're going up the field, we're going to score. Um, I, I can't really remember what happened. We got a penalty, we kicked down into the corner 
I think we won the ball back from the kickoff. Got a penalty, kicks into the corner. Uh, ball is thrown to the back of the line out, and uh, Maul is pulled down. And Woody just kind of accelerates this pick and go and scores. Rog kicks the penalty. We win by a point. So you talk about significant moments. Um, that try by Woody and uh, against Saracens and Tolman Park could easily pick that in there. But you know, uh, Peter Stringer's try. This this was on the back of the miracle match against Gloucester. Um, where we had to do this insane situation against Gloucester to beat him by X number of points. We end up winning 33-6 and we get into the quarterfinals and our reward is a trip to Welford Road against the champions who'd not beaten us in, in the Millennium Stadium the year before. The hand of Neil Back. Uh, yeah, um, and we're thinking, God, that's some reward, isn't it, for uh, you know for, for, for qualifying but we'd lost two pool games in that, that year. We'd, we'd lost against Perpignan away. Well, round one against Gloucester, we are beating 35-16, and that was a bit of a an eye-opener. They were the English champions at Gloucester. Stars to the team, uh, Trevor Woodman, Phil Vickery, Andy Gomersell, um, Tinas Delport, uh, James Simpson, Daniel. All these guys were big names, and we went to, um, to Gloucester, and got walloped in round one. So it did. We didn't start the competition well. Um, round two, we beat Perpignan at home. Then we back-to-back games against Viadana, uh, the Italian team. We beat them well. Round five, we go to Perpignan. We're beaten again. So we're completely on the back foot. We've lost two games, in in, which is risky. You know that back then there was six rounds. Um, so we had to and and. Gloucester had had been unbeaten. I, th- I think they had lost in Perpignan, so we had to beat them by X amount of points. We didn't know any of that stuff. It's kind of famous, but we go to Welford Road. We'll go back to that one in a minute because John Kelly scores that try. I picked mm-hmm. picked that one. Um, Peter Stringer's try, yeah, for me, um, not not because I had an assist at the end, but I just thought I it just jumps out at me that that was a very really special day. Um, There's certain games over the years that we could pick out and all the lads the Munster team in that era would pick certain ones there was a few ones on Saturday nights in cast that were seen to be a regular occurrence they they, they were ones I, they're in my memory but this try um, because it was against a really powerful strong Leicester side oh yeah um, they went on a lot of these fellas were winning a World Cup a number of months later um, you know they'd kneel back Martin Curry Ben Kay Johnson Austin Healy, Tom Tierney actually um, was scrum half that day right. uh, for Leicester. Um, Jordan Murphy was playing, Leon Lai, Tim Stimson, all these guys. Um, very strong side and they don't lose in Welford Road. So again, the mentality that you meant, mentioned there was pretty strong. We gave ourselves a, a real good chance there. We knew we had to to find a performance and um, crazily enough, I think it's it's 3-0 at half time <laughs> to Munster you know you're not really you're thinking you're going to have an open game here and, 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 and a lot of scoring so we're winning 3-0 then we go 6-0 in the 56th minute um, and then they score a try I think after that Steve Booth um, and unfortunately he's passed away as well um, there's three people that played that day Steve Booth Tom Tierney and, and Anthony Foley um, and all from from heart disease, which is incredible to think that those three people on the field that are not around anymore. Um, Steve Boots Boots scored a try, and they go seven six. Um, 
then Rog gets a try and I think our reaction our performance and our intensity that day was was phenomenal um, so we're winning 13-7 and we have a scrum in our half and it's it's um, Rog makes a little bit of a break and gets tackled but pops the ball up to Rob Henderson in the tackle Yeah, and then he in turn Sorry was that surprised that you were expressing there about Ron McGarr making no, a break? No but Rog yeah. there was a perception that Rog he didn't make a break he runs at the line and found a bit of space and, and got leg tackled but on his back kind of pops the ball up because um, you know sometimes people think Rog didn't run with the ball he was actually really good at running on get his timing well uh, onto, onto the ball Um and uh, attacked it unbelievably well, pops it up to Rob Henderson, who then does a bit of a shimmy, passes it to Mike Mullins, who kind of goes on the outside and gives this kind of basketball pass back in the inside to me. You did well to catch it, actually. He throws it at you at a bit of an awkward enough height. Yeah, um, and and literally I'm kind of getting wrapped-hacking. Yeah. I think Neil Back is one of them, and I'm shocked that I can get this little pop pass to Stringer who comes on my shoulder. And It was one of those ones where you're, wow, this is it. Uh, we had them all right at the end of that game and you know Leicester were the team who we probably would have looked up to we had a lot of similarities we had them all at the end of that game where we mauled Leicester about 20, 20 yards up the field and it was one of those ones where the Munster fans are just singing chanting it's it's incredible um, and that happened in Welford Road so it wasn't it was a wonderful performance it was absolutely brilliant um, everybody was on it that day and that try from Stringer kind of summed it up at the end so it was one that stood out for me and it was really special um, great shot of Peter Clossy at the end of yeah. the crowd kind of going yeah. mad you know and showing that emotion had and, he retired and, or yeah he yeah. retired the year before yeah. um, and so it was a really special special day but obviously you don't win trophies and uh, we went to Toulouse then in the semi-final we were beating 13-12 Um and there was a home final in Dublin. So we were whiskers away from from uh, being in a final. And Leinster, actually, funnily enough, were on the other side. And they lost to Perpignan in Dublin, um, which I think they lost 22-15 or 21-17 or something like that to Perpignan in the other semi-final in Dublin. And it ended up being two French teams in Dublin with yeah. a small crowd. And Toulouse won it. Toulouse beat you by a point in the semi Toulouse beat us by a point in Toulouse, yeah, 13 12. Um, again, a couple of drop goals in the end that were missed. Jeremy Staunton had one or two, I think, and uh, very, very tight game. Um, you know, it was a. We were a whisker away from probably being in the final and, and probably, you know, winning the t- tournament, you know. Um, so very close but that was a really significant try from, from Peter Stringer. You weren't wrong about Welford Road. Two teams had won there in five years. I like, which is insane to think of 4,000 Munster fans there to watch it. And a very strong team. And, and the scenes at the end, we're out on the pitch and, mm. and all the Munster fans are, are kind of there. So, yeah, very special moments. And it was a great try, I think. Uh, so next we have John Kelly's try versus Gloucester in the Miracle Match that same season. Yeah, no gl- uh, glitz or glamour about this. <laughs> um, I just think significance, really, and the importance of this try, uh, again, um, you know the messages are starting to come onto the field about what needs to happen when we kind of we score two tries in the first half. Mick O'Driscoll gets one midway through the second half, and then we're kind of pushing for that fourth try. And and suddenly the messages are coming on. Keep going. Don't concede any points, but keep pushing on. And I'd say ninety percent of the team didn't know what the scoreline. We had to win by twenty-seven points in the end or more, and we did that. We won by twenty-seven points. But this try at the end. 
Um, we had a penalty. Uh, Rog kicked it into the corner. Um, Frankie Sheehan throws the ball to the back of the lineout. So we had this lineout where we moved the whole backer up to the front of the lineout. So Jim Williams, myself, and Anthony Foley were at the front. Um, and we moved some of our, our second rows to the back of the lineout. So the ball is thrown to Dunnick at the Dunnick O'Callaghan to tail. Axel peels around, pops at the stringer, and he hits. Um, Jason Holland and Mike Mullins in midfield and we set up this mall um, and we kind of are driving them to Gloucester right back towards the, the goal line and we need this for a try and they pull it down it looks like they're turning the ball over um, it's a bit kamikaze because there's fellas coming in from all sides and all angles and um, we eventually the ball comes back out it's popped up to Jeremy Staunton he makes a little dart for the line rolls it back through his legs and, and, and then Stringer sweeps it away to Rog and he passed to John Kelly and it's unbelievable it's phenomenal uh, we've got that four try he kicks the conversion and um, we we uh, had those incredible scenes you know they make the video about about the game but none, none of that was really we weren't really conscious of any of that it's amazing when you're out in the field and to look back at the, the old stadium and the supporters and even looking back on it yesterday I was seeing people I knew um, and what it meant to them and how exciting it was and what an atmosphere it was um, so it was a really significant try John had scored one in the first half Mossy Lawler scored one in the first half but that really was a again a really obviously a crucial try for us to put us into the, the quarterfinals to be able to go to Welford Road Roger always said that he, he didn't know before he took that kick that it that it was so significant were you aware or any no of the idea um, okay. I think after Rog kicked the ball th- there was a lot of messages coming on then don't concede don't the and I gave away then? would you believe I gave away a penalty very shortly after that outside the 22 I'm trying to poach a ball from a Gloucester player um, I'm penalised which genuinely I think mm. there, I, I, I I shouldn't have been penalised I should have got the penalty the players holding on the ground but it's one of those ones where you say nowadays to people, just let them have it. Don't don't contest the ball. You know, if you're if you're if you're winning in a game, just let them have it. Just let them have it. Um, my mentality wasn't just let them out of. Here's a turnover for me, and yeah. uh, I, I I was penalised. If they if Gloucester had stopped and paused, and actually Thought about it. let Mercier Ludic, Ludic Mercier kick the ball over the bar, they would have went through to the quarterfinals. We were out. Um. That penalty would have. His put communication them wasn't great there. Through. No, they, and they didn't really know either. So Andy Garmersel gets the ball and he taps and goes really quickly because they're now thirty-three six down in the game. But really, if they if they knew and understood themselves, nobody saw this happening. Shane, mm. they didn't see it. We didn't see it. I remember the night before this game. You know, Mick Galway uh, wasn't starting, but he was the ca- captain, squad captain, and obviously a great leader for us and like the night before we it was a case of it's going to be really difficult to beat this Gloucester team at home here uh, but we owe it to the fans and ourselves to get a performance and it was a very emotional kind of Friday night meeting and um, we were incredibly pumped for that game it was phenomenal again um, looking back and kind of the the work rate and the intensity of the players it was it was it was brilliant to see and um 
but the significance really we didn't know anything about the score lines there was talk about game plans that were lost in taxis and we had lost our game plan or not all news to me at the time you know what I mean but it was a brilliant win a very special day again so the taxi story was untrue some someone is claiming it's true but uh, we had no idea of any sort of um, situation of, of game plans or anything like that that never filtered through to us but um, you know it was a lovely day and a really special day and uh, we had a great night in Limerick afterwards and as I said we had a great win in Welford Road after that and you know then the disappointment of the semi-final against Toulouse it's all part of the journey to, to get to a point where you do eventually get over the line. You haven't picked one from the first year you get over the line. You've picked one from the second one at Dennis Lee. Well, again, I could pick Stringer's one against... I love the the surge bets at the try after scrum where Stringer goes around surge bets and in 06. And that really seals... Um, well, it doesn't seal the game, but I think it just... It was a brilliant, brilliant piece of work from, from Peter Stringer to kind of dummy one way and and... You know, obviously to catch such a brilliant player Serge Betson who uh, was a tackling machine um, a great try that, ga- that game in 06 um, I just loved the fact um, in 2000, 2008 in the final against Toulouse um, Dennis Leamy just was he was a monster really you know I remember Graham Henry in 2006 describing him as 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 such when he played um, test match against New Zealand and Hamilton you know Graham Henry spoke in a press conference afterwards about Dennis Leamy being the best number eight in the world he right. was phenomenal had his injuries um, very unfortunate injuries with his knees um, but you know we were we were a different team probably in that 08 game because you had Doug Howlett and Maffey and Topoki, um as opposed to you know the difference in maybe Trevor Halstead and John Kelly played in the centres the, the two years previous and no disrespect to them, Halstead and John Kelly were brilliant, and that game plan and structure beating Baritz in 06 was 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 perfect. But 08 was a little bit different. Um, when you had those type of players, you just want to try and give them the ball. And we had we had um, we scored some brilliant tries that year with the, with that monster team. We had a really hard group in the pool stages with Wasps and 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 Clermont Ferrand at the time, um, but. Probably nearly lost. Uh, well, it didn't the, the the semi-final in Coventry against against um, Saracens was one where we were favourites, heavy favourites, and in the end were kind of lucky to get through it. They possibly were claiming a penalty right at the end of the game that could they could have kicked and put us out. But we're, we get to the final in 08. Um, again, it's a a kind of drab affair because it's it's fairly low scoring. Is it the start of France? No, it's it's in Millennium, uh, Millennium Stadium okay, against right. Toulouse again. Yeah, it's the second time we're back there in 2008, and um, Toulouse are three nil up, and um, we get down close to their line, and I Toulouse end up with a five meter scrum going defending. Uh, we kind of twist the scrum around. Uh, it's reset again. Um, then the Toulouse go again and. I think it was the scrum twist again and I tackle Sean Sorby, their number eight, South African, kind of on the line. We get the scrum and then Leamy breaks off the back of the scrum and we go infield and there's a bit of picking and going for for a number of minutes. And it was really just... It's a forwards try. It's a forwards mm-hmm. try, but you know what? It's it's a dogged, hard-working 
And I honestly, I was getting a little bit of an adrenaline rush say, yeah. watching this again. And, you know, I remember at the time just the atmosphere. Was it a little bit uh, of narcissism between you and the back row? In, in the a little bit, yeah, yeah. Well, um, look, I think Toulouse were phenomenal and we had incredible respect for them. You know, they were basically the French international yeah, side. Yeah, they were. And um, I think, but we felt really, we, we were in a good place. Um, we started picking and going in the 71st minute, which uh, is pretty famous. Uh, every time I meet any of the Toulouse players now, I go, they go pick and go, pick and go, pick and go. And in, it was crazy. Tomas O'Leary had, had come in for Peter and played in the quarterfinal, semi-final and final. And he started kind of off you go forwards, out in the, uh, inside the Toulouse half. And we're about trying to see out the game. Anyway, that's... Uh, <laughs> If you look back on that, it was crazy. But I just, Leamy's try there was was one of, it was a real statement of um, intent. The scrum, the way we kind of pushed them back in a scrum, because you think of those earlier days, you think French scrum was going to kill oh, yeah. us and they're yeah. going to try and they believe they're going to kill us. Now we're at a point in 2008 from that kind of journey from 96, 97 onwards for, for some of us, and now we're the ones who are are doing it to them. Are doing it to a French scrum, you know. So it's 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 gone full circle, really. And um, I just remember that try, brilliant. It was a great try, and it was it was scored by by Dennis, who was who was just a, a phenomenal player. And uh, we had a homegrown pack: um, Marcus Horn, Jerry Flannery, John Hayes, Donico Callan, Paul O'Connell, myself, Dennis, and Wally, uh, which was pretty impressive <laughs> we, it was the Irish pack bar me because they you know they were they were all Simon Eastby was playing with all those guys for Ireland for a period of time so they were great players to have around you know we had a great line out um, Paul was on his game you know constantly uh, Dunica work rate through the roof so it was, it was a great team and then as you say when you have Mafia and Taboki in the centre they're special players but we nearly lost the semi-final but we thankfully got our hands on a second trophy that day yeah and Frank the greatness of the team as well uh, I think a lot of people are going to be going down a YouTube wormhole as a result of the I'm last sorry there are not more Ireland tries in there but um, I didn't play in enough of Ireland games where there was really significant tries in big Six Nations games or big you know um, test matches but um, there's a few there that I could have easily picked um, you know Hendo's three tries in, in, in Rome they jump out at me a um, couple of tries in the World Cup in in, in three as well, and 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 six na- other Six Nations games. Um, my favourite try of all, though, um, if I was not been not involved, was Mick Galway's try in '93 against England. He didn't have a lot to do when you look back at it now, but <laughs> I remember enough. being at that game. Uh, I was playing. I think I was playing under 18s or under 20s with Shannon, and we went up on a bus from from Limerick. We were in the terraces in the old Lansdowne Road. And again, this is star-studded English side. Um, Will Carling. Will Carling, uh, Rob Andrew, Martin Bayfield, Jason Leonard. Um, you know, powerful, powerful English side. And Gallo gets that try at the end in the corner. He was with Shannon. He was someone I was kind of looked up to. Um his sister runs on the field and that's 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 just brilliant giving him a big hug at the end Mick Bradley makes a little half break and pops it up to to Golov um, again significant because I was there and I remember really well yep. some of these tries you could pick any of the, the, the lads to come in and pick tries it's ones that kind of you you don't want, you want to try and 
think in your mind if I was to ask you straight up what comes to mind first so these are kind of the yeah. ones that came oh, no, to mind oh no you did a great job it was perfect ok cheers thank lads. you very much uh, a quick Vera Pau update on Louise Quinn we are also a bit concerned we think she can play we're always honest she's going to train and we will see I think that's keeping the opposition guessing she's playing if she's, if she's doing any training mm. I, I would be amazed if she's not uh, starting that game tomorrow OTB AM The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball.